0: A lot of people talking about um, Mbappe this last week. The mm. guy's going to be a future Ballon d'Or winner. Come do it in the Premier League. I know that's a very yes. cliche English thing to say, man. But come do it in the Prem. Like, come do it in the Premier League. Please.
1: Please. Welcome back to Hot Takes Only. This is episode 33. And, Willie, I have been ready for this episode since Saturday at like 10.30 a.m. We'll get into it a little later. But first and foremost, how are we doing today? What's going on
2: um you know I'm grateful not to be caught up in these storms best yeah ever. no seriously
1: okay. prayers see. up to folks uh in the northeast and and in Texas as well I know there's a lot of uh a lot of controversy surrounding Texas. We won't get into that because this is primarily a sports podcast, but if you are in Texas if you're listening, appreciate you for tuning in number one, but also uh hope you are hanging in there hope your uh your power is back and your heat is back and you're able to uh to survive basically so yeah, big ups to big prayers up to the State of Texas, if you will. But uh for right now, we've got some sports to talk about. So as the video of this might suggest, we're obviously having a video component that we're gonna cut up and upload. Uh so for those of you watching the little video portions, you'll be able to see we do have a special guest today. Uh we'll have a good good friend of ours, uh of of uh a couple years from intramural soccer, golf, and just life in general. He'll come join us in the show. We'll get into that a little later, but I got to say, Willie, this is one of the most exciting episodes we've had just because I know there's so much content we want to get through, yeah. but we're going to cram it all into a really short amount of time. So it's going to be a very oh, yeah. fast paced episode. Oh yeah, we will. Very, very fast paced. So before we get into our, our guest and our kind of conversation around a couple of different things, primarily with Premier League, uh, Champions League, and with golf, uh, I do want to talk about uh, some moves in baseball. And, and you and I were discussing this right before we went live. We got a lot of uh, a lot of moves to discuss. Not a lot of huge ones, but moves that we do feel like uh, are are worth discussing, anyways. So, a certain Fernando Tatis Jr. Willie,
3: yeah,
1: this man is twenty two years old, and he yeah. is about to get paid. Oh,
2: he's gonna be he's gonna be rich, man.
1: Tatis Jr. signing a fourteen year, three hundred and forty million dollar contract uh, extension with the San Diego Padres, basically ensuring that. You know, barring a massive salary dump in a few years, Tatis is going to be a Padre for life. And, you know, we've obviously seen situations like this where players sign massive deals and then kind of forget how to play their sport, if you will. They, they have these massive slumps or declines. It's the expectation. It's the salary. It's just everything that, that comes with signing a massive deal that can weigh on you from a purely professional sense. And you don't get to produce, you don't get to go through your process the same way, and it really hits you the, it really hits you hard and for someone as young as tatis it, it's a gamble for sure, but that said, he does come from a very storied baseball family, and you know this this is something that has run in his veins for his entire life, uh just being around his father and being around the game in general. You know, his father wasn't a superstar, if you will he wasn't wasn't the likes of. Um, even like a Delano De Shields, for example, or a Tony Gwynn, um, but still had a very successful career. And I think we have, you know, there's a lot to be said about the expectations surrounding him after signing this deal. And I just want to get your thoughts on what this means for just the Padres right now.
2: Um, yeah, so um, I want to hear your thoughts too. Um, so first of all, I, I don't like the contract. In fact, I hate it. I got to be honest. <laughs> Woo! Um like you you hit it right on, on nail head, first off. Um now in the short term, absolutely, knowing you have Tatis for fourteen years, like definitely helps you. And this team looks like they're gonna absolutely contend for the National League pennant and title and you know, maybe be World Series favorites. Um I really dislike the contract though. Um you you know, you said it, he's young. Um, he's had two seasons, in MLB, his first season. He really tailed off at the end. I watched a lot of his, his games. Um, and you know, when Mike Trout and Mookie Betts got their contract. They are way older. They are way more proven. And the other thing that I don't like about Tatis as great a player as he is, is, um, when you, in in the baseball, particularly when you're not a huge market team, when you pay guys a huge amount of money, they better be worth it. And one of the signs that I don't like about Tatis is he's not a super high on base guy. He's good, you know. I think his on base percentage—I looked it up earlier—it was in the 30s. Mm. Not worth most money ever. And so, yes, he's a great fielder. Yes, he's got—he's a five-tool player, and yes, he's got power for sure. But if he has seasons where he's not getting on base and he's not really hitting well for average, you know, 340 million, like. That's a lot
1: of money. Yeah, I remember reading a stat. Uh, sorry, not to not to cut off that thought. I remember reading a stat before. The last three off seasons combined, the Padres has spent upwards of I think seven hundred sixty-eight million dollars on three players. Uh, all of these are multi-year contracts. All of whom are uh, at some point in their careers proven players. Uh, and it only took. Uh, it really only last year did all three of these players come good, if you will, and start to uh, and start to really become the players that the Padres have spent all this money on you know that said I think this this deal is is a gamble I'm not going to say it's good or bad yeah. and, and that's not me of course being indecisive or having that that tendency to sit on the fence it's more so just he's 22 years old he's had 162 game season and I think he was hurt for a lot of it he had a hamstring injury I think his his rookie season in 2019 for a good chunk of the year uh, so hard to be in the rookie of the year conversation when you have that much time off, but in in the the chunks that he did plays, you saw obviously flashes of the immense potential that he's yeah. kind of had with him his entire career. What you know from the moment he signed a big league deal. So the other side of that is obviously they're expecting him to continue on the trend that he is. I mean, last year he was obviously one of the standout players in all of baseball, not just for the National League, not just for the NLS, not just for the Padres. At the same time, he does need to prove himself. And like you were saying, yeah. Trout and Betts, when they got their contracts, they had a couple years under... I mean, Mike Trout had how many MVPs by the time he signed that massive extension? Oh. Mookie Betts had one MVP and a world, uh, two World Series rings? Yeah. Or played, one... I
2: think he played for seven years. In
1: the yeah. And Betts was one about to be two World Series rings. Because let's be honest there, I mean, no one was really getting close to the Dodgers last year. Even though the Rays made it kind of close, no one was really going to get yeah. past the Dodgers last year. They just... We're too good of a team. We'll talk about the Dodgers maybe a little bit later. So it's a gamble. But the thing I like about it is that they're they're being aggressive and they're not afraid to, to be like, we we feel like if we get the return that we expect, or even a fraction of the return that we're expecting out of Eric Hosmer, Manny Machado, Fernando Tatis, Hugh Darvish, Blake Snell, uh, and Mark Melanson, who we're, who we're going to discuss in a little bit. Even if they get a fraction of the return on that, they're still looking really, really good this year. And I'm not saying they're favorites in the division because obviously they have to de- play in the same division as the World Series champions. But I think they're going to surprise a lot of people who aren't as into baseball who, are, you know, last year maybe saw their success and thought, okay, maybe they're going to take a step in the right direction. Yeah. But for, for baseball fans, and I, I'd assume if you're listening to this, you are a pretty big baseball fan, you are not going to be surprised by what the Padres can do this season and if they even surpass that. So I said. Either last week or the week before, the Padres would actually struggle in the first part of the season just because they have so many new players, so many new faces in the clubhouse, and having everyone kind of gel together mm-hmm. can be an issue, especially right out of the gate. But once this team gets rolling, they have potential. I mean, of course, on paper, they have potential to win 100 games easily.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is,
1: we're, we're talking about a rotation that has two Cy Young Award winners mm-hmm. or Cy Young caliber players I don't know if Darvish has actually won a Cy Young, but he's he's been in the conversation pretty much his whole career, except for one or two years. Uh Blake Snell, who had a sub two ERA the year he won the Cy Young, uh, coupled with Denelson Lamette, who showed flashes of sheer brilliance last year. Chris Paddock, who has ace stuff, but yeah. still needs a little bit of command. You put all that together with a bullpen that they are going to continue to reinforce with obviously the signing of Melanson, which we'll talk about in a second. But that's just, it's a scary proposition for any team that has to play the Padres 18 times a year. I mean, they're not just the team that you're going to go into San Diego and expect to win two out of three or three out of five every single time.
3: Yeah. Um,
2: No, absolutely. I guess um, the thing is, you know, I absolutely agree. I mean, this team is loaded and they believe in him and they believe in the upturner trajectory, but they didn't have to do this now. Mm. It's years before service time ends up. So why would you, no doubt, and why would you gamble on such a long-term investment right now. You mm. have more time, right? They could have waited. Um, there's so there's so much I think he has left to prove, especially over a full 162-game season.
1: No, absolutely. And I, I definitely agree in that sense. There's it, It's a really early part of his career for him to sign any sort of extension. I mean, I think even Ronald Acuna Jr. was 20, I want to say he was 23 or 24 when he signed his eight-year extension with the Braves. Uh, Which, by the way, his agent is probably, he's probably going to be furious at his agent for letting, seeing Tatis sign this deal, uh, seeing the the deals that guys like Mookie Betts and Mike Trout got, and for him to get paid, I think his AAV is just over $10 million a year, maybe a little more than that. But for someone who has, you know, true MVP potential in Acuna Jr., he's probably thinking like, where's, where's my money? Like, you know. For sure. But but the Braves are notoriously frugal, and that's you know, that's to be expected. I wasn't shocked by that at all.
3: Yep.
1: Um, but back on Tatis, you're you're definitely right in that he has a lot to prove. But I think this this deal says a couple things. It says number one, we're ready to compete with the Dodgers right now, or we want to compete with the Dodgers right now. Whether they actually will is obviously another thing, and you know, pitchers and catchers reporting over the last couple of days has made us so much more excited about baseball season just because oh, really? the mm-hmm. the sheer possibility that in two, three, four weeks' time, we're going to see actual baseball games with actual baseball players, like professional baseball players. Like, pff, wow. Um, but it also says that we are putting our full faith in this guy and this guy alone. I mean, yes, Machado and Hosmer signed long-term deals, but we're putting our faith in this guy to be the face of the franchise for the foreseeable future. Yeah. And they're, they're telling Tatis, we know what you can do. We've seen what you can do on the field show us you can do it for a long time. We yeah, exactly. truly think this is your potential. It's up to you to live up to it. And I think he's, he's one of those players who, yes, he's kind of flashy and he plays the game with a certain flair. And a lot of kind of old school baseball folks will go, well, I, I, he doesn't play the game the right way. Well, yeah. so what? He makes the game exciting. He plays, it, he plays it in a way that's fun, but he also produces. And that's the most important part. You don't care about how he does it. You just care that he does it. And he's yeah. more than likely going to do it. Now that said, you know, there's a lot of ifs associated with a 14 year contract oh. which by the way 14 years from now the Mets are still be paying Bobby Bonilla 14 years from now will be the last year the Mets have to pay a million dollars to Bobby Bonilla every like whoever Bobby Bonilla's agent was like I want to know who this man is and just like or who this person is and just meet them okay. and see how they got that kind of deal because that's incredible yeah um but yeah I I, I can understand the the hesitation that you'd have with a deal but personally I like it. I like the chaos. It's yeah. it's fun. As a baseball fan, it's fun.
2: Yeah. I mean, I guess it's, you're, like you said, you're telling him you believe that and show us, like, you can be this player. But the reality is that the majority of the time you can pick out, with the exception of Mookie Betts and Mike Trout, just about every position player is is not worth that money or has good seasons and bad seasons, right? I mean, look yeah. at I mean, you can look at the Dodgers with Cordy Bellinger and Corey Seeger, You can look at freaking Bryce Harper, right? I'm like, mm-hmm. so I mean, two—that's ex- a lot of expectations to place on a guy. And uh, one thing I should mention, and this is something not really relevant, like right now, I'm sure. But you know, looking at the future, he does have no trade clause, and so theoretically. You know, you couldn't trade him for something down the road. If this team, for every reason, doesn't quite work out and they try to you know, gut the team, they couldn't cash him in for a lot of prospects. That's
3: just another point.
1: Yeah, I mean, it it would take a pretty significant amount of money or just something to convince him that he's, you know, that they need to move him on. They need to move on from having him as the face of the franchise. But, you know, realistically, thinking... Ten to fifteen years ago, or not ago. Ten to fifteen years from now, is not necessarily our job. Our job is more so: yeah. what does this mean today, right. and what does this mean but, this but, season? But look, look. But I do, I do get what you're saying,
2: though. it's important to point out because here's the reality: the Boston Red Sox are going to be very good in a couple years. They've got a lot of good prospects, and they had, a, you know, they have had to reshuffle some things, but they did get a couple good players in in the Mookie Betts trade. And I'm just saying. Look, no one thought, right, Mookie Betts was ever going to leave and sign a a 14-year deal, uh, or or not 14, however long it was. (laughs) But, you know, it's like, in part, you know, this guy Jeter Downs, they got, and Alex Verdugo could be really good players, and they got a couple other guys too. So now they don't even have that option with Tatis unless he approves the trade. So it's just something to point out because the Red Sox are going to be able to rebuild. The point is I know we're in the business of the now, but if the Padres ever do want to move on, they just lost huge leverage they had to yeah. maintain the franchise.
1: Right. No, and you're absolutely right. And, and predicting the future is a really tough thing to do. And that's why you, know, you and I don't get paid the big bucks to, to work in front offices and, and, and make decisions on whether or not we should hand out a guy a $5 million contract or a $15 million contract or 15, five year or 15 year million dollar contract. Um, I think the big thing to, to remember though, is that a lot of times front offices will have GMs who, yes, they have to understand the analytics of it all, but they're also baseball guys. They're people who understand the game from a very just kind of, yeah. I I, I don't even know what the word for it is. A very just instinctive level. They just understand the game and they understand that in sports, you know, this is obviously team sports. Teams have championship windows and the Padres feel like this is their championship window. The next three, four, five years is their window to win a championship. Yeah. So they're figuring let's, let's just go all in. If, if they can win a world series in the next five years, then they have all the leverage they need to convince Tatis that, you know, you'll be a franchise legend. If you can lead this team to world series, that means that if 10 years from now, when there's four years left on his deal, he'll be 32 years old. Then they'll say, you know what, we need to go in another direction. We appreciate all you've done for us, but for the franchise, this is better for the franchise. He'll understand that, they'll understand that, and they'll be able to move on. That said, you know, that's obviously a, a pretty significant hypothetical. And you know, yeah. you and I have had a lot of hypothetical questions over the years. So
3: yeah, no, it's, I,
1: yeah. It's definitely one that gets you talking, especially considering the other moves the Padres have made this year. Yeah. And that doesn't even count. That doesn't even uh mention Mark Melanson, who yeah. was most recently with Atlanta and did a Fabulous job with the Braves by and large yeah. um, who signed a, a signed a deal with the team for $3 million guaranteed with uh, an option for uh, 2022 and a $1 million buyout with uh, another 2 million potentially in incentives. So yeah. for a guy who's 36 years old, who has a lot of experience under his belt, this is the ideal scenario. And for, for a team that already has drew Pomeranz and Emilio Pagan as the ninth inning options, you're you're looking pretty solid. I mean that, if if you want to go any order you want, that's seven eight nine right there. That takes so much pressure off of Darvish, off of Snell, off of Lamet, and it makes it definitely makes the Padres more of a threat than they were, you know, three weeks ago. Yeah, now absolutely. Spring training just started this week, so we'll we'll see what happens. But I'm I'm curious to know what your take is on this deal specifically because I know you are not a big fan of relievers whatsoever. No
2: um no not uh, at all i think they massively overpit i mean uh and as well as you know they but i guess if you're strictly talking on the player then yeah i think wensons a very reliable pitcher like you said with you know with Kaylee and those two guys you mentioned uh, they got they got a good back end of the bullpen and they're absolutely going to need that so i mean man i think he's just an extremely reliable pitcher and so I think, I think it was a, a fantastic sign.
1: Yeah, I don't think you could have, they could have done much, um, much better with the, the talent that was on the market. That said, you know, it's, it's one of those things where when you add so many new faces to a team that is just kind of coming into its own, it can be a problem, and we've seen it before. <laughs> if this team, though, if they perform to their potential or near their potential... They're going to be a lot of fun to watch, and you know we've talked about this in the last couple podcasts, but I'm going to be watching so many more Padres games this year mm. just just to watch Snell and Darvish and Tatis uh, yeah. and Machado. And
2: I mean, I think you know if you look at the storylines from around the MLB, you consider every team. I just think the race between the Padres and the Dodgers, as well as the games they play against each other, are going to be the number one, like most interesting thing. So. If you're on the East Coast or in the Central uh, time zone, maybe you can stay up and watch their games.
1: (laughs) Yeah, no question, no question. So if you are East Coast-based or anywhere but the West Coast, uh, it is worth staying up for these games, at least right now. Obviously, the season doesn't start until April 1st, but for the next six weeks, keep your eyes on what the Padres do in in the market because they're not done yet. I I still think they're going to add one more reliever yeah. Or one more starter, maybe you know, maybe a three or four guy, not someone who's gonna take the ball every fifth day and, and give you six, six plus of a shutout ball. But God, I, I like the way this Padres team is starting to look, just from a neutral perspective.
3: Sure,
2: yeah, no, I, absolutely. Um, didn't Lanson win a uh, World Series ring with San Francisco,
3: by the way, or did he miss the uh, missed that?
1: I want to say he missed it with San Francisco. Okay. But, oh my God, did he win one with, with Washington? I don't think so.
3: I think he was early. I think he was there before.
1: Yeah, yeah. Let, me, let me double check. Because I feel like he just missed it. Let's see. Um, no, he doesn't have a ring. So mm-hmm. he, has, uh, he won the NL Saves title in, 15, in 2015. He's a three-time All-Star. And um, he's, been, he's been with uh, the Yankees, the Astros, the Sox. Pirates, Nats, uh, the Giants, uh, Braves—last couple years—and then now with the Padres. So you know, a little incentive to to go out on a high note. We'll never we'll never know, really. I I, I do think though that having another guy who has closing experience, who has pitching in high leverage uh, under his belt, yeah. is only a good thing for a team that that's kind of the only flaw that they have right now is still just the the deep bullpen that. Teams need in October, and they can kind of make up for it with their starters. I mean, assuming they they get a good Denelson lamette after he was hurt for most of the playoff run, I like I like how it looks.
2: I'll just say real quick. I I, th- I just think that as good as they look, the pitchers. I just think that there's. As great as they look on paper, I really want to see it first. I mean, mm. Lamette still needs to show more in a big sample size. I want to see Snell pitch a whole season without injuries. I want to see Darvish perform when it counts. You know, like, Clevenger obviously is out. You know, I want to see um, if Chris Paddock can return to, at one point when he was ace material. So, I mean, that is to be desired, particularly when you've got those guys in the Dodgers who are, you know, pretty proven. At the top of the rotation,
1: so yeah, and there's there's some guy who just signed with the Dodgers for just just a couple million dollars. No, no one huge. Um, Definitely not a coveted free agent in the market. Definitely not someone like Trevor Bauer. Definitely that definitely didn't happen. Uh, That's that's still kind of shocking to me. Like we talked about Trevor Bauer a couple weeks ago, saying like, yeah, no, he's gonna he's gonna sign with the Mets. You know, the Mets are gonna splash the cash, and here we are. Literally, you know, early afternoon, the day the podcast releases, and here comes the news that Bauer signs a three-year deal with the Dodgers. So, truly, you never know in free agency. You just never know.
3: You, That's very right. It's, it's crazy, man. Free agency's crazy.
1: <laughs> yeah. I want to move a little bit north uh, and stay on the topic of relievers because Trevor Rosenthal signed with the A's. I think there were a handful of teams... Uh, including Boston who were in on Trevor Rosenthal and he decided to sign a one year, $11 million deal with Oakland. There's a lot of deferred money. So he's going to make, I think 3 million a year for the next three or so years with the exception of this year. So there's, it's, it sounds kind of like an Oakland deal where, you know, they don't have the, the big, the big bank account that the Yankees or the Padres or the Dodgers have. Mm-hmm. But I think it's, I don't know. Cause Rosenthal since he was with the Cardinals hasn't really been the same Trevor Rosenthal. I mean, yeah, he, he showed spurts of it uh, with San Diego last year, but I, I don't know if he can, if he can be the same Trevor Rosenthal that came up as part of that nasty uh, Cardinals bullpen in
3: 2013,
1: mm-hmm. then the A's have, they have themselves someone to kind of make up for Liam Hendricks leaving.
3: Yeah.
2: And, and no, one, I, I think, I think that you, you hit the nail right on the head, which is first of all, they lost Hendricks. And I just think, the A's have shown the formula, right? The A's have shown over the years, they've shown how small market teams can be successful. And I believe they got Sergio, Sergio Romo as well, if I'm not mistaken. And so, um, it, you know, when you're a small market team, you lose, you know, Simeon, you know, you lose some really good players. The way you can be competitive is with a good bullpen. And mm. so I think that particularly, this is an absolute must. If you're going to compete, this is an absolute must. You can get through it with a, a decent pitching staff and a stacked bullpen, which you know Rosenthal. I mean, it's as good a replacement as you're going to get. You're right, through Liam Hendricks, and so I I like the move a lot. I like, I mean, he is older, but I I still like the move.
1: Yeah, I mean, and and let's remember the A's are still a very talented team. I mean, they traded Chris Davis, and we didn't really talk about that trade a whole lot, That's just true. because it was it was a little, I I don't know what to describe that deal as because. Both Chris Davis and Elvis Andrews aren't exactly, you know, in their prime. I mean, Chris Davis is a couple years removed from his prime, but he's, he's not the player he was when he hit 247 like three years in a row. That was bizarre with, with you know, mid, I think it was low to mid 40s in home runs, uh, but whatever it was. But um, also looking at Oakland, they signed Adam Kolarek, they signed Yusmer, or they traded for Adam Kolarek, signed Yuzmer Petit and Sergio Romo as well. And they've got Trevino and Wendelkin. You know they they have players to be six, to be competitive in that division. And that division is it's such a toss up this year. Yeah. I mean, the Angels, who know we're going to get out of Otani and and Trout, um, the A's kind of they feel like they're in in the mix every year, even with the tiny payroll they have. Um, the Astros are unfortunately in the conversation again, and especially especially that they went to the playoffs with basically you know an entire pitching staff of of rookies you know that division doesn't really have a clear front runner and i think that's that's what makes it exciting
2: yeah no for sure i mean i would say i would say um in a lot of extent i would say the american league is really in in flux this year yeah i would say that there's wild card spots open pretty much everywhere so i mean. Uh, yeah, absolutely. They can still go for it, you know? Absolutely.
1: Yeah. Um, really quickly, one other deal the A's made was Mitch Moreland on a one-year deal. He's primarily going to DH just because they have, you know, gold-glover Matt Olson yeah. at first. Yeah. But, you know, Moreland as a DH, you could do worse. I mean, you could do better, obviously, but you could do worse. And, you know, he can occasionally play first base as well. He's a former gold-glover at first base, so, you know, you don't just forget how to play first base, especially on the defensive side of the ball. Um, so. It's it's a low risk deal. It's a guy who's won a World Series. He's been in a lot of really good teams before. Yeah. I don't I don't think there's anything negative you can say about it.
2: Yeah, hopefully it would be nice if he could uh, you know rediscover some power. Yeah, that'd be a really big plus for them, particularly losing Davis.
1: Yeah, I mean it is a big ballpark though. That's the only concern though for for A's fans is it's it's a big ballpark, and for someone on the wrong side of 35, it's a little you know. It's not. You're, you're, <laughs> yeah. It's not Yankee Stadium, that's for sure. Oh,
3: jeez. Yeah. No. Yeah. I, mean, I could hit it out of Yankee Stadium.
1: <laughs> Dude, uh, the dimensions at Yankee Stadium are so dumb. They're just they're so stupid.
2: Yeah, bro. It's I, I mean I although I will say I don't really like
3: Fenway right field either. I think well, that's also
1: Yeah, Fenway right field is also is quirky, but it's not it's not just straight up like three hundred feet away from home plate.
3: Yeah. You know,
1: it's it's what like two two eighty five to the pesky pole or something like that, but you know, it, it's a small target though. So if you can hit that target, you know, good, good on you, I guess. Absolutely. But I guess that's one of the things that makes baseball unique is that every every stadium is different, and it's one of the things that just factors in. You know, you have the the unique nature of of stadiums and, and sports all around the world, but baseball I think is the only one where the actual field itself makes a difference from place to place. Oh, and, huge! And that adds a bit of uncertainty, which is a lot of fun. And that's you know that's one of the reasons I'm a baseball fan because you, you just don't know what to expect sometimes. Yeah. And sometimes it hurts you. Sometimes it helps you. Yeah, Who knows?
3: It's,
2: it's it's really true. And I think you know I'm I'm sure for players they they
3: really notice it too. Yeah. You
1: know? Yeah. Right. Like they they talk about taking uh taking uh pop flies at. Uh, at the Coliseum in Oakland and at uh Tropicana Field. Um obviously taking balls off the monster in Fenway. Yeah. Um and then you have you have bigger stadiums like um like what is it T-Mobile Park now in Seattle, whatever they've renamed it to? I don't know. I think it's yeah, I
3: think it's T-Mobile
1: uh. T-Mobile I think. Whatever, whatever it is in Seattle.
3: Petco is really big too. Is it still called yeah. yeah. I think
1: they've brought Petco in a little bit. They I think it was it was a couple years ago, maybe maybe 20 14 or 15 they they tried to extend the dimensions and they just couldn't hit home runs at all like no one was hitting home runs in san diego so they brought the fences back in i i, I don't remember exactly what the story was but it was something along those lines that's and funny. it just made me laugh really hard because it's just like <laughs> no one could go yard here yeah, <laughs> something's wrong
3: it was i mean it was it was crazy bro. it was crazy oh, yeah
1: crazy stuff
3: um, one quick thing
1: um yeah
2: we do got to talk about uh So, what do you think about all the talk about the baseballs?
1: Uh, This is this is just Major League Baseball trying to control their own narrative. It's it's Rob Manfred up to no good again. Like like, do we expect anything different? It's Rob Manfred. He's up to no good. We all know it. Rob's Rob's doing some. He's he's conducting some funny business in New York.
3: Yeah, he he does. We all know it. Reputation for
1: sure. Yeah. Uh, a couple of things that we're going to talk about really quickly before we get to our, our guest interview slash appearance, whatever you want to call it. Uh, James Paxton's going back to the Mariners. That's, I think, yeah. something to note. Uh, I don't know if you heard the background. My roommate, Reese, big Mariners guy who just uh, just went nuts about that. Or not really nuts, but, you know, if you could hear it, you probably know what it sounds like. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> big, big maple going back to the Northwest, um, you know. The I mean, Yankees had their opportunity to to win something with a, a big big tall lefty with with good stuff but unfortunately, you know, they couldn't get it done. You really hate to see it.
3: Let me ask you on what were your thoughts on Paxton with the Yankees?
1: It's, honestly, just probably not enough data. I mean, yeah. what what was he like a season, a season yeah. and a half, maybe two, two-ish seasons? Yeah, two full two full seasons. Yeah, two roughly two full seasons. I mean, there's and I don't know. He was good in spurts, but he missed so much time. He did, yeah. and and that was always a concern with with Paxton. And when the trade happened initially, a lot of the talk was, "Oh, his injury problems are going to be are going to be an issue, especially when he has to go through the Sox and the Rays and all the teams in the American League." And they kind of proved to be right about that. Like nothing about his time in New York really like stood out, if you will.
2: Yeah, I I agree. He missed so much time on. I think he showed flashes of being. You know, okay, but I think you're right. I, I think overall it was too small sample size and overall I, I wish he had pitched better in some of the big moments.
1: Yeah. But uh, what well,
2: uh, well, series against the Astros.
1: Yeah, like what was what was his stat about the first inning ERA? He had like a, a astronomical ERA I mean, for yeah. the first inning. For whatever reason. I, I like I, I kind of understand it, but at the I, same time it's like
2: i feel like we should do and we should do a whole podcast about the yankees and talk about the last decade no i'm being dead serious because if you look at a lot of their moves it's really interesting and to be honest it's pretty incompetent by brian cashman
1: (laughs) i would love to have a buddy of mine who uh who whose podcast i was coincidentally on uh back in october i think actually released in december but he's a big yankees fan and we were talking about it briefly he's just like. I'm happy there's another team to clown that's not the Yankees, and uh, I'm like, yeah, I'm always happy to, to clown the Yankees. And he's like, okay, let's keep it to a minimum if if you don't mind. And I was like, yeah, that's that's fair, I guess.
3: Yeah. Well, but it's true.
1: We'll have to have that conversation though, because it, it's interesting to look at what the Yankees have done since the turn of the century. Yeah. Uh, it really started after. It really started in 2001. I mean, you talk about losing Game Seven in Arizona to the Diamondbacks. Yeah. Uh, in in walk-off fashion and then oh two not really being a factor oh three uh losing to the the upstart florida marlins at the time now the miami marlins uh 2004 against boston 2007 against cleveland uh 2009 winning it all but after spending 500 million dollars on three players
2: after that, it went all down.
1: yeah and and they've they've kind of re retooled in a sense and They've they've done it in a way that's not Yankee like. I mean, they've focused on player development and getting good prospects, less so than going out and getting a thirty something year old free agent.
3: Well, I just I but what I
2: don't understand is there's just when you combine the two, they have missed on the starting pitch. I, I don't know Yes. If they've really, really missed on the starting pitch. Yeah. Giving three hundred million dollars to Garrett Cole or whatever. In the last ten years they've really missed on on the starters. I mean, you could say Tanaka when he was there was, you know, he was good, but not, you know. So, yeah, I, it's interesting. It, it's very interesting.
1: Yeah. And the one thing with the Yankees. Carl
2: Pavano. From, remember Carl Pavano?
1: Oh, my God. The Carl Pavano deal oh. was the most confusing <laughs> thing ever. Carl oh, Pavano. Yeah, oh, my God. Um, I just remember um, Javi Vasquez, too. Oh,
3: Javi Vasquez, yeah. When
1: they signed Javi Vasquez, I think it was 2011, I remember, he gave up like it was like seven or eight runs in less than three innings against Boston, and it was one of the funniest things I've ever seen because it's like it's someone who had a stellar career in parts with uh with Atlanta, no less. It was
2: awesome, dude! I love this stuff. You, I, I remember watching you as a kid,
1: and then and then all of a sudden he just goes to New York and forgets how to pitch. Now, granted, there's something to say about Yankee Stadium and pitching in a tiny ballpark where you know if you make a mistake, especially out over the plate, where Say a right-hander who goes opposite field, or a left-hand, a pull pull-hitting left-hander. They got extended. It's gone. On, it's way gone.
2: It's just. I mean. Uh, oh yeah, no, for sure. But on, it's just a lot of the guys. Like I remember AJ Burnett, Keg. Like I loved AJ Burnett. He's in
3: Toronto.
2: Um, I mean, it just goes on and on. You could just keep going down the list. It's like really
3: hilarious, you know.
1: It really seems like they've only, they've only hit on two free agent pitchers in the last two decades. It's Garrett Cole. I mean, and Garrett Cole still hasn't been back to, you know, Houston Garrett Cole, but that's also Houston. We're not going to talk about the Astros. Uh, and CeCe Sabathia, and that's it. I mean, Burnett was good in his first year in New York, sure, but.
3: Tanaka,
2: maybe, could you say Contreras? Totally Contreras?
1: As a, a little bit. Oh. And and Tanaka kinda. I mean, Tanaka was good, but not you know. Not maybe he wasn't
3: not an ace, but a very
1: good pitcher. He was a he was yeah. he was oh, a good pitcher.
3: I mean, he was the most kind of.
1: But but talking about like a a, a bona fide success wow. in New York.
2: I thought Sonny Gray was
3: gonna be like. Oh
1: my god! Oh, my god. When the, when they got Sonny Gray from uh, from Oakland, I was like, oh my god. Stop the fight. It's over. And then Sonny Gray just forgot how to pitch.
3: Yeah,
2: and
1: now he's, he's remembered how to pitch again with uh, with Cincinnati.
2: We talked about it on the cecil Sabathia podcast. Should, yeah. yeah. Listen to
1: it. Yeah. Pretty cool. Yeah. Man, it, we do have to have a Yankees fan. As much as I don't like them, we do have to have a Yankees fan on the podcast and, and have them tell us what it's like from their perspective over the last, yeah. you know,
3: my good friend.
2: two
1: decades. We'll
3: come on. We'll come on talk about it. Yeah.
1: It's, all right. Well, that's a little preview for, for all of you listening.
2: Quick, Quick, real quick. Yeah, I do. Ju- I do just have to mention because we have to be fair. I do feel like the Yankees were a serious victim of the Astros cheating scandal um, in that ALCS uh, series. Um, and you know, talking to Yankees fans in 2017, they'll remind you that they thought, if not for the Astros cheating, they really thought they had a chance.
1: Yeah, but it, it it's tough to say, obviously. But and-
2: they they lost every game just like um just like uh well I think Dodgers won one on the road but the in that series it was an epic series but remember all hmm. seven games they split I mean it was they every all teams won every game at home yeah and CC Bathley talked about it he's like literally he's like we knew what was happening he's like we didn't think we had a chance to go there and so it's like from a player that's so respected like him to literally say, he's like, we just didn't really feel like we had a chance going there. It's just staggering, you know?
3: Very staggering.
1: Yeah. And it's one of those things that it's like, yes, the Yankees did, they did uh, really get hurt by the Astros cheating. At the same time though, do the Yankees beat the Dodgers? Yeah. I mean, You you have to talk about the team that really lost to, to the Astros. and specifically going back to what was it, game five, one of the all-time classics, how many breaking balls did Kershaw throw and how many swings and misses were there? I think it was like 47 breaking balls, none of which were swing and miss.
3: Clubbed. And he was an amazing pitcher. He got clubbed like
2: a Mm -hmm. big
1: deal. And it's not like he had bad stuff either. Like it's Clayton Kershaw. He has, you know, some of the best natural stuff of anyone of this generation, let alone all time. And so when you have, when you have someone who knows that you're going to throw that, Crazy twelve to six breaking ball. What can you do if they if they know it's coming? They're just gonna sit back and try to foul it off or try to try to you know get some power on it. It's it's just mind boggling to think that someone of Kershaw's caliber was either tipping his pitches that badly or just the Astros knew exactly what was coming when it was coming. And like yes, so so back to the Yankees. I get the I get the frustration in them feeling cheated by uh by the Astros at the same time though you have to also understand that they were they would have to play the Dodgers yeah. and i think that Dodgers team the way they were playing and the way their bullpen was yeah. it, it that's a very good team sure. a very very good baseball team
3: no
2: absolutely i mean you never know you're right i mean the dodgers probably would have been the favorite but still you know they you know they, Yankees, they, they certainly had enough talent to make the uh, series interesting, if that were. Oh,
1: oh no question. And they certainly felt hard done by, for sure. And that's, that's not something I'm going to dispute, ever.
2: And I mean, that but, series, I will just mention, I mean, that series was, like, really good. Like, yeah. one of my favorite series I've seen in a while. It was just, like, back and forth yeah. all the time.
1: Yeah, that was one of the better ALCSs we've had in, in recent, or just championship series we've had in, in recent memory.
3: Absolutely.
1: No, and we could talk about that for a long time, but we got a couple of things to move on to. And then we've got our guest who we want to, uh, we want to talk about a little bit. A um, couple last, couple last things, uh, two guys coming off injuries, uh, Shohei Otani and Chris Sale. So I'll start with Otani. So this is a quote by Joe Madden, basically saying there's, there's no limits. I mean, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but there's no limits on Otani this year. So we're going to see full on, you know, Japanese Babe Ruth Shohei Otani. Um I'm excited. That's there's something about a player who comes off Tommy John, who is you know a a two way player, a true two way player, and has all the attributes to to yeah. you know be the kind of do it all player that allegedly Babe Ruth was, but you know Babe Ruth was a little. He enjoyed his beer and his hot dogs, I guess. Yeah. Uh, but I'm excited. Uh, and, and if you're an Angels fan, you got to be excited too.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, I'm,
2: first of all, I just think from a fan perspective, you should be excited. I, I guess um, he's a, I would say, I'm just curious to see if he can be great at either one. I would say that, you know, to me, his hitting hasn't overly impressed me. As a pitcher, when he first came and was pitching, he looked really good. So, but I'm curious to see how that goes. I mean, heck, maybe according to you, he'll be the GOAT because he's the only guy that can, that can do it. I
1: mean, he's the only way who would, in my eyes, fit the criteria for being the GOAT. But that said, he has to do it equally well on both sides of the ball. Um, yeah. That's a really, really tough ask. I don't care who you are. You could be, you know, you could be Mike Trout and you still can't do it both ways. So does that technically make you the goat? I don't know. It's, it's, it's a tough one. Yeah. So, no. you know, we'll, we'll see how that pans out. But if you're an angels fan, there's reason for optimism, uh, especially with, you know, Mike Trout,
3: Hopefully they-
1: there's always a chance.
3: Sure.
1: It's, it's just always the pitching with the angels. I don't know what it is. It's just always the pitching.
3: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Uh, and the last, the other one is Chris sale. We want to talk about. Um, so I, I read up a little bit of, of this stuff today, but basically the idea with Chris sale is that there's, there's no apparent rush to get him back in the rotation uh and that's basically code for Boston is not going to try to win the world series this year they don't they don't care at all uh the the goal the mo this year for the Sox is let the young players get some playing time let them develop uh and and have you know have Alex Cora reestablish himself as the team's manager i don't think there's any conceivable way that sale comes back before the all-star break and if he does come back for the all-star break it's going to be you know he's going to have probably 75 80 um pitch count caps
3: mm-hmm.
1: and you know when you have a guy you're paying that much money yeah. you're going to be hesitant to to get him back in right after major reconstructive surgery so i don't see him back for the all-star break but
3: is that is that I mean. What do you
2: think the future holds for him? And do you think that that contract is going to be something that the team really regrets?
1: Well, it's a Dave Dombrowski contract, so the answer is probably almost invariably yes. Um, looking at you, Miguel Cabrera. Oh. Um, with with Sale, it's one of those weird things because if you just look at him pitch, the mechanics just scream elbow injuries. Oh my god! Yeah. And that's something that, as a power pitcher, is always going to hurt you because his his ability to Mix up a crazy, crazy good slider with a really hard fastball is probably what it's what makes him as good as he is. But when you have elbow issues and we, when you have elbow issues that come as a result of mechanical problems, we've talked about this with Clayton Kershaw as well. The reason Clayton Kershaw has so many back injuries is because his mechanics, his windup is literally something that contains two separate leg lifts at once. So if you have to raise your leg 200 times to throw 100 pitches, it's going to put strain on your back. And yes, there's pitching from the stretch and the slide step and all that. So it's not necessarily 200, but it's, it's in the neighborhood of maybe 150, 175. That's still a lot of stress on the back. And with Sale, it's the same thing with the elbow because you're just snapping the, the wow. joint so hard.
3: And
2: he like, goes like uh, sidearm. Like, uh, it...
1: Exactly. Yeah. So For sure. I wouldn't be surprised if he has another elbow injury in a year or two you know as as much as I hate to say that, and I don't wish that on anyone, of course, but
2: yeah, I just and with all the movement he throws on his pitches, it's just yeah. it's
1: yeah it's nuts, but yeah. you know we'll we'll see what how they how they ease so, him back into I'll
2: it this, I, I do believe in general, like i said you you have you can justify every single move if you win, so for me, you know what, whether it's just rewarding him, Chris Sale helped them win the World
3: Series, you know. There you
1: go. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the Red Sox model since 2004 has basically been put every, every egg in the win-it-all basket, win the World Series, be mediocre for a couple of years, win the World Series again, be mediocre for a few more years, win the World Series again, have no business winning the World Series when you do, basically 2013, uh, blow it all up again, uh, be bad for a few years, get back a former player as manager, win the World Series again, and then just completely... Botched the the negotiations with a uh, generational talent, and um, you know, four or five years from now, win the World yeah. Series. So it's it's just cyclical with the Sox. At least it has been since far.
2: You know, ironically, they actually might not regret that deal a ton because if you look at the direction they're going, maybe they prefer the the quantity of prospects they got over. Will be bets. bets by himself, not one. No player in baseball is ever good enough on their own to carry a bad team, especially a position player. You know.
1: Yeah, and that's true, and and the one supporting evidence that the front office has, just off the top of the head, is a Dustin Pedroia deal. Uh, Pedroia having retired earlier. so we didn't we didn't talk about Pedroia when, whenever it was.
3: He's retired, literally. Yeah. Um,
1: I I remember when I was when I was still playing baseball, I modeled my swing and my game after Dustin Pedroia because I was still playing a lot of second base at the time. I was I was still I was pretty short up until like tenth grade, something like that, but. Yeah, it's, yeah, he was one of the players who I looked up to a lot growing up, um in addition to Manny and Big Poppy. And yeah. Just the the way he deteriorated at the end of his career, I think the Sox are kind of looking at him uh as kind of the direction that they think Mookie Betts is going to go. Do I think Mookie Betts is a better player than Dustin Pedroia was? Yeah, sure. He has a better arm than Pedroia ever did. Um I think he has better speed. He's probably a slightly better hitter, but they're smaller guys who rely on being quick. And that's usually one of the first things that goes as you get older.
3: Yeah, fair point. Absolutely fair point.
1: So, but then again, sports medicine has gotten a lot better since Bergroya was a rookie. So,
2: I, I don't know. Who knows? It's just like he just disappeared, bro, for a few years. I just wish he got like a proper send off and last in the play and stuff.
1: <laughs> yeah, it was just all the injuries that he had. I mean, it yeah. was. Got injured, came back, then got injured again, then came back again, then got injured really badly, then tried to come back early and then got injured again, and then got injured one more time, and then that's it.
3: And that happens in your older.
1: Yeah. It's it's one of the more disappointing things in, in recent memory, and I, I know that he's gonna be he's gonna be a Hall of Famer for sure. Um, maybe not first ballot, although I'd like to see him first ballot. Uh, but you know, he's gonna go down as one of the more influential players in, in Red Sox history. Uh one of the best, maybe not, but definitely someone that a lot of people could relate to. Just the whole, you know, you're too small, you're too slow, you're, you're not good enough for, for this. And just kind of taking all of that negativity and, and proving people wrong. I think that's that's one of the things that we'll always remember Pedroia for. And whether or not the same thing will ha- happen with Mookie Betts will make the Red Sox either look really, really smart or really, really stupid.
2: Yeah, that's your, I think you made a really interesting point, but you're right. No doubt with Pedroya, just his professionalism, the way he approached the game, just model guy in the clubhouse, great work ethic, just solid fielder, solid hitter, like just really exemplified like how a pro should be. But you're right. I mean, that's a really good point. We may be looking at Mookie Betts in four years, and all of a sudden he may you know, drop off. But I, I will say I do think that you're right. Pedro is a very good hitter, but I think Mookie Betts is a better hitter.
1: Yeah. I think I think talent wise Mookie Betts has the edge and, and obviously, you know, he he's cut from the same mold, but they don't play the same position. I mean, Mookie Betts was originally also a second baseman and they they moved into the outfield just because they they had Pedroya at second. I mean, pedroya is one of the reasons Mookie Betts is not a second baseman.
3: Yeah. No, it's, so
1: it's right. does that contribute to Betts having a better arm? I, I don't know. I don't think I don't think so. I think that's one of the things that you either just have one or you don't. But Ooh.
3: I mean, definitely he talks about how playing in the infield helped him.
1: Personally. Yeah, and that's true as well. So, you know, there's I, a lot.
3: I should mention real quick,
2: too. Yeah. Um, that's right up there with in terms of sad retirements. Like, Pedroya just having no farewell. And then the way Sabathia retired where he pitched and he got injured.
1: Like, yeah.
2: Like, they deserve better than that. That
1: guys. was a really tough one to swallow. And, you know, for for – as much as I don't like the Yankees, he's one of the kind of generational pitchers we had and just global ambassadors for the game. And, and to see him deteriorate at the end of his career was really, really sad. Yeah. Um, it, it's, it's tough though, because you know, if sports did sentimental, then, you know, Steven Gerrard would have won a premier league with Liverpool. Um, You know, Lampard would have won the champions league with Chelsea as a manager, which, ironically is what we'll talk about in the next uh the next segment with our guest yeah. but you know sports don't do sentimental is not a thing in sports they don't do storybook usually and it's it's sad but it's just one of the realities we face sometimes and and that's why it, it makes those kind of storybook scenarios all that much more fulfilling because they don't happen every now and again when you when they happen they don't you're not expecting them in at least a certain way or who's who it's happening to, what the situation is, all that, all that stuff.
2: Like when, at least when players are going to retire, maybe they want to be a story beginning, but at least they, hopefully they let you know. I,
1: I, yeah. I wish, you know, definitely, definitely. There's, you know, there's, there's a host of players we could look back on and, and look at the end of their careers. I think that's just more so, you know, how things go. I think the nice thing I'll throw this out and then we'll quickly switch out. We'll, we'll get to our guest in a second, but Albert Pujols, Seeing him kind of have a little bit of resurgence the last year and a half or so, that's, I think that's one of the most needed things in baseball. Him and Miguel Cabrera, I think if they can go out with more of a bang and less of a, you know, less of a whimper, well, it's good for the game.
3: I wouldn't put them in the same category in the
2: sense that I think Miguel Cabrera has been a really good hit. I mean, for the most part, still a really good hitter. Like Pujols, you're right, a little bit of a resurgence, but for the most part, he's just been awful since
3: he got to the Angels
1: yeah, it's one of those things where when, you know, sign a big big contract, forget how to sports, you know. Yeah. It's just one of those things sometimes. But yeah, Cabrera, one of the greatest all time hitters. I think there's very little argument against that. Mm-hmm. You know, basically from the time he came into the league. So he's amazing, man. Two guys to watch though as they get to the end of their careers and yeah. <sighs> anyways, baseball is right around the corner. Pitchers and catchers have already reported. We've got a lot of stuff to look forward to, but we got to switch gears a little bit. We've got a guest coming up on the show. So here is our good friend, Chris Crema. All right, we're here with our good friend, Chris Crema. Chris, actor, golfer, general funny man. Thank you for, uh, for taking some time to join us on the podcast. Really appreciate uh, having you on.
0: Of course. It's, a, it's an honor to be on and to so, share some
1: hot takes. So I, I've known you since I think it was like April 2018 or something along those lines. But um curious to know what what you would describe um specifically as it comes to sports, but in general, what your what your uh your MO is, your when it comes to sports or just generally.
0: Okay. What's my MO when it comes to sports? Well, I think we met playing football. Yeah. And I, I would say that I would say that if you know me personally I'm I think I'm quite like I'm not I'm like a bit of a gentle a gentle giant but um I'm very passionate I I have very passionate about sports like I I think if you met me on the football pitch like well, like you did you'd be like god this guy's an absolute nutter like he's off his nut he's crazy but I'm not I'm not like that at all like I'm quite like a little posh quite sensible but that comes from growing up in the UK and just uh Everything I remember, like the first time we we were playing together in this recreational soccer league. I got, I'm cool. I'm gonna call it soccer for now, but I'll end up calling it football as we go on. But um, in this recreation recreational soccer league in Los Angeles, I remember playing games and being like, God, like I haven't played soccer in five years, and I'm so competitive, like like out of my mind competitive. And I was like, it's, this is supposed to be fun. And it, it, it turned out to be not fun. Yeah. So competitive and so passionate and quite fiery too. But, but I would say that my MO in sports is, yeah, I, I run a little, I, I run a little, uh, red blooded, you know, a lot of warmth. like I, it, it it's, a, uh, you know, not just p- playing sports, but also following sports, you know, it really gets the, gets the heart pounding and gets me going, especially, uh, especially especially football especially football so
1: yeah so the only reason i put it that way is i was trying to figure out a very indirect way of getting you to 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 talk about that because i I know you you know outside of outside of the the whole sports arena if you will and i I know what you're like off of off of the field off the course or whatever but on it it's just like this this guy this guy's insane but also like (laughs) He's also like going to crack a joke when we're losing like five, nothing in a recreational league that everyone is taking entirely too seriously. <laughs> yeah. And,
0: As an alter ego. Potentially.
1: Yeah. Pretty much. Yeah.
0: I think, yeah. I'm just like, I, I, it's funny. Cause it's the way I would describe it is like, I'm kind of like, you know, oh, make a joke here, make a joke there. And then all, all of a sudden, someone barges into me. I'm like, what you want? What? I just go South London on them. And they're like, <laughs> what, who is this guy? Like, what's going on? But um, I think that also, I just, it, it just comes from, I think it, it comes from playing, it honestly comes from playing football as a kid in the UK, which it's really hard to describe. It's hard to describe. I think I'm sure, I didn't play American sports growing up. I didn't plan. I don't know what it's like, like, you know, the little league system or like junior American football or junior basketball, but like youth soccer in the UK, it, you know, at, especially at the club level, it was so, it was very intense. Like it mm. was, it was really, you, ha- you, you know, you, uh, it's a very soft, like the way they describe football in the UK is the two big sports like football and rugby and football they call is the gentleman's, uh, the gentleman's game for the work working class. And rugby is like the working class game for the gentleman. And like football is just like, it's a rough, like the, the, it's a rougher sport. You know, you go like, we would, we, you travel to some pretty rough areas and like from a young age, you're just like surrounded by a bunch of, it's very, you're surrounded by a bunch of you're surrounded by a bunch of people fighting each other, like whether it be parents on the sidelines or kids on the on the pitch, and like it kind of all goes away the minute the whistle is done. But it's just that that type of atmosphere. I grew up playing football in, and so when I started playing again with UO, and I was like, God, it, it, it it's it it doesn't leave you so. Need a lot of therapy to get that out of your system. Probably, right? <laughs> <laughs> so no, I, like, God, I feel like a kid again. But
1: yeah, it, it's funny you put it that way because it actually kind of goes with one of the po- one of the things I want to talk about a little later. I have this explosive rant I'm planning on going on a little later on. We'll get to that in a little bit. But I'm
0: looking forward to hearing it.
1: I, I just know that there's there's a little bit of the perception of sports in this country, particularly sports that are not American football, versus football in the UK. Yeah. It's, it's night and day when you actually talk to someone who grew up there, who lived there, who, had, who has that sort of background.
0: Yeah. It, it's oh, got, it's, it's got, religion I I abroad. I, t- I, totally, I totally agree. Like, I think people who call football soft, like soccer, oh, i got, got to remember to call it, people who call, so- call soccer soft, like they haven't, they haven't, first of all, they haven't played soccer. No, You know, I think first of all, from an athletic perspective, it's just running. Like you have to be so fit. You have to be strong. It's a physical sport, but also like people who go to an American, uh, uh American football match, I don't know if they, they could handle going to a, a, you know, go to a Millwall versus Tottenham match in London. You know, like you might, they, they might leave the stadium because they're so offended by the things they hear. You know, I remember I took my girlfriend at the time to a, a Chelsea versus Tottenham match in London. Oof. And you, we were walking down the street and you just kind of hear like, it was almost like Game of Thrones. Like you hear these like drums on the ground and like a march of people. And then you turn around and you see maybe like 50 policemen and they're all, and, and they're probably more like a hundred policemen. And they're just surrounded these like 4,000 away fans who are marching down the street you know, because they have to be, they have to be like secured off from the home fans, the Chelsea, because they would fight each other and like people would die. So the police are walking on the streets is like, what's going on? I'm like, oh, the away fans are coming. At the same time, the Chelsea fans are in the pub drinking and the police have locked them in the pub because if they, if they're in the pub, if they go out of the pub, they'll fight each other. So on the side of the pub door, you hear like people banging. Oye, 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 you you Tottenham bastards! You, you bastards! And she's standing there like, Oh my god! I was like, yeah, welcome, welcome to football. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. so people who don't think that the like the, people who who criticise like people like I hear that a lot from them, like American football fans. Like, oh man, soccer's so so weak. Right. I'm like. You, I I really go, go say that to some guy in, in South London and, and see, and see what they say to you. Or like, go, just go watch, like, a go, go to the UK and just go watch a, a local under 16 match. And, and, t- and tell me how you, if you think that's true afterwards, because, but I, so I think I know what, you're, what you mean, but we can get into that later. So. Yeah.
2: I think that's just, just to illustrate like that, that's fascinating. And like, cause that's like, that shows you, also what you were saying about the fans, like just the level of passion about football there, right? You think about here, right? It's just, mm-hmm. like they don't have to separate in American sports, the fans of the different teams. And like, you know, sure, you might get some fans that yell at you, but if you wear a shirt of an opposing team in an opposing section, you know, it's just friendly bicker.
0: But there it's like, you know, intense. Like it's like, yeah, it's it's, it, just- yeah it it's, yeah, I, I I don't know why that is. I think it's just, you know i think the country's smaller for and it's you know the, so there's for some reason because the country's smaller the rivalries are more intense uh, i i don't know why that why that is but um yeah it's uh it's a very uh it's very interesting how that how that's worked out and it it what it, it is super intense like and you know i don't like in the uk i remember it was a little bit before my time but it's got better but i remember in the You might not know this, own but the UK, I kind of found out recently, all British sports, all English teams, I should say, were banned from playing in Europe in the 80s and early 90s because like hooliganism was so bad. And yeah, and so like there's like a history of like kind of like if you go to parts of Europe to go watch football, you hear of like these ultras. who like you in like italy and and serbia and like eastern europe here these ultras but like the uk was kind of that original like hooliganism and it's basically a masquerade for for, like in some ways it's like a masquerade for gangs like these like these these hardcore supporters like if you go to a millwall match or you like a lot of these millwall supporters are basically like the, the fan clubs they run are just like kind of criminal enterprises but like that's just uh that's just that's just football in the uk it's just like that's just how that how it is and i think it comes from i think it, it comes from you know the uk is a very has a lot of like industrial background like and a meaning like a lot of working class background and i think from that you kind of get these fierce rivalries and you know in intense scenarios but I wouldn't have it any other way, and I, I love it. It makes it made me love the game more for sure, and all sports more. Do, do you
2: find that so? How does it? How does um, choosing a team to be a fan of? Would you say work there? Would you say that teams really stick to where they grew up? And if there was a local smaller club, they kind of stick with those fans, or do they? Some fans migrate to the bigger clubs,
3: the more commercial clubs.
0: I would say that. Um, uh, yeah, I would say that. I think it def- I think for the most part you kind of support around where you are I you know I know a lot of people might have two clubs right so you know like you might have grown up in a town called Woking but the the, the football team in Woking might have like be in division seven and have like a 1,000 seat stadium so they support they support Arsenal because Woking's you know not too far from Arsenal um as well but and then in the other part, you get, you, you know, you get a lot of accusations, like a lot of Man United fans, like there's a, there's a saying that, you know, when Man United, which is, pro, which is unfortunately the biggest team in the UK and arguably the world, like whenever they come to London, you're like, Oh, it must've been a quick, a quick trip for you. Cause you live around the corner, meaning like you're not actually from Manchester. You're just like a fair weather fan. And you, Mm. and you support the biggest team. So it goes, it goes a little bit of both, but I would say for the most part, a lot of people support where they're from and where they grew up. And I think it passes down. Like my dad is a Chelsea fan. So even though he didn't grow up in the UK, he's a Chelsea fan. So I was a Chelsea fan. And my, you know, I also, I I was lucky enough to go to the Chelsea games a lot. We had season tickets. Wow. And that's, that's also where that, so going in being a part of the stadium, And being a part of, you know, being a part of the crowd and the atmosphere, you know, like if I, as much as I have a deep disdain for Liverpool, like if I went to Anfield as a kid, kid, I would, like, I would be, there's no way I wouldn't be a Liverpool fan. Like that, like listening to them sing, you'll never walk alone. Like it it would be hard not to support that team, Mm -hmm. especially if you've been to the stadium and watched the match. So
2: what do you think of the, I mean, People complain a little bit, right? I, I guess the perception is Stanford Bridge is a little quiet. Uh,
0: what are you What are your thoughts? I think that Stanford Bridge. I'm not gonna lie. When I went back recently, well, not recently because of COVID, but before COVID, I was like, it's gotten a little quiet. I think that. I think there's quieter ground, but I think that it's just. I think the. The thing about Chelsea is it's also the, the the humble brag. It's the nicest part of London. Mm-hmm. Like it's the it's the it's like it's sw. It's like the most luxurious, nicest part of London. And therefore, attracts the most tourists. So I think a lot of the times there's two. I think they don't sell as many season tickets to Chelsea fans anymore. And I think that probably the season tickets are too expensive. So mm-hmm. a lot of a lot of tickets go to you know, wealthier individuals who maybe aren't as passionate as people in the shed end, you know, and there's like, you know, the the shed ends, like the the cop, there's always like one, there's always like one area of the stadium in the UK that's like filled with the hardcore fans. So, but I I think it was much louder when Frank was there. I think that Chelsea's lost. We can get into this later, but I think Chelsea's lost a little bit of his identity. And when you do that, I think the fans just don't, you know, there's not as much passion there. And, uh, but I, but growing up, I never thought I never thought that Stamford Bridge was quiet. Like there was some, especially those we, especially those big Premier League games, and especially the Champions League games. Those were the big ones growing up because we were trying to win the Champions League for the first time. It was, they were the the atmosphere was fantastic. But oh man, we're not yeah, as quiet I mean, as Arsenal. Not <laughs> nowhere near as quiet as Arsenal.
1: <laughs> Ooh, shots fired, and it's funny you say that because uh, you're actually the first guest we've had on the podcast who's not an Arsenal fan. Uh so we oh, really, we've had yeah. a couple other guests in the show. Uh, one is guys. is my brother and his uh his two other his housemates in, in San Francisco. Uh they're all huge Arsenal fans. And another friend of mine who's not really a soccer fan, at least in in Europe. Um so it's nice to get this little uh a different perspective, especially because you spent a lot of time in the UK growing up. So there's there's a little part you could talk about fandom and hooliganism. You could you could spend entire podcast entire episodes talking about this i mean there's people who dedicate there's their life's work as sociologists or economists to this kind of thing so that perspective i think that you're bringing is invaluable and it's actually a really good segue uh i was going to ask how you became a chelsea fan but therein lies the the connection so that that takes that box but i want to get into the recent history because the last I, i would say what four or five years or so have been at least since I've been a fan since, I don't know, the start of 2013, probably the most up and down for Chelsea, and even going back and looking at their history before that. I mean, yeah. yes, when when Abramovich took over and then Mourinho came in, it was very much like, you know, it was classic Mourinho, second season champions, third season fired, or whatever it was. Yeah,
0: was it, this is, the, is this the second time he came around, or the original? Are you... Doing, are you- the,
1: the second time, but it's he, he time, has that yeah. kind of pattern to it. So yeah, it's, that, yeah, it's that sort yeah. of inconsistency. That was but. the
0: beginning. I think that was arguably the beginning. I, I guess the, Real Madrid was the beginning of that pattern because into Milan, he left on his own accord. He was like a hero. And then Real Madrid didn't go well. And then that was the beginning of this pattern that has played out since. And the beginning of the downfall of Mourinho, I think. A little bit. Mm-hmm. but Totally. So anyway, I didn't mean to interrupt, interrupt you What you about kind of the ups and downs of the last four or five years with Chelsea. Yeah.
1: so when it was, I think it started for me, you know, as a fan, it basically started the season after the title win with Conte as, as manager. It was that, uh, what what year was that? It was, 20, it was the 17 18 season, I believe it was? Yeah, I, I, I
0: believe so. That's when we won, no.
1: I think it was 2016-17. 16-17 was the win, but I'm thinking about the, season, the first season after that was when everything oh, kind of started 10th, to...
0: And it was, a, it was a bit of a disaster. Yes. Yes. That was... That, I believe that was 17-18. And that, that's, kind of, that's when we've been up and down and up and down. Yeah. Um, it's definitely been the, the least successful period that I can remember. I remember I became a Chelsea fan. I like to make sure people know that I became a Chelsea fan before Abramovich took over but I was still quite young but I remember going to the games back when Claudia Ranieri Ranieri was a manager in like 2002-2003 with Zola and Hasselbank and Johnson and you know we were we were very much you know we weren't I don't think we were in the top we were we were were a top four team at the time we finished third and fourth and fifth and then I would argue that after that, it, there wasn't a lot of ups and downs. There were a few bad moments, you know, I don't know if you guys remember Andres villas Boas. He, he was, nice. yeah, he was a low point. He was yeah. a terrible manager. I don't know where he's managing now, but uh, other than that, I mean, we hired a lot of managers, but we were just, we won. I don't think, I, I've always had a, little, had a little bit of a chip on my shoulder, but I don't think Chelsea gets enough credit for the period of like 2004 to like 2013, like, We just won so many trophies. You know, we won the Champions League. I think we won four Premier Leagues, maybe five. I think we won like eight FA Cups, you know, count. I I don't even know how many League Cups we won, two. And there wasn't a lot of dips. Since then, it's been, other than that Conte winning season, when we won the league, I think it it hasn't really been to the standards that Chelsea have held in the Abramovich era. Um, And I loved Kante, but I, and also I think what's developed is as Chelsea, the Chelsea fans are very, have become, and I'm one of them a little bit, They become, and you see this on Twitter a lot. There's Chelsea Twitter is quite famous for being like there's factions and they fight against each other all the time and they're quite toxic. And um, I think it's, and I think like, you know, with Conte, like everyone loved Conte when he, when he came and, and then quickly turned on him. Pretty quickly, but I think that I think that was probably justified because I think I think Antonio Conte has a massive ego, and I think it it was very from everything that came out. I think that he lost the dressing room quickly, but and then you know, I appreciated what Sari did. I think that he, you know, finishing top four, winning the Europa League was fantastic. I'm a you know, anytime we win trophies, it's another thing to shove in the faces of like people in like Tottenham and Arsenal. Who think they're all like they play great football? This is before Mourinho, but they don't win anything. But Sarri's football was—I mean, I went to a game. I went to a nil-nil draw with Chelsea Southampton. Like it was so bad to watch. It's like watching. It, it would be like it was. It was not enjoyable. Hmm. And then, you know, one of my favorite seasons, and I—I—I I, I was on. I'll be honest. I was pro Frank being sacked and I'll get to that but one of my favorite seasons of recent memory to watch and to get up at four thirty in the morning pacific time to watch a Chelsea game was Frank's first season as manager mm. like because there was some sort of weird like it was the most relaxed I felt as a Chelsea fan for a while because there was it was nice that there was no expectation I think that I think that it was I think that Chelsea fans for years have felt frustrated with, you know, feeling like we've lost so much talent that have come from the Academy and it's credit to the whole football club because we have developed, you know, since Abramovich came in 2004, we've developed like maybe top three academies in the world. And if not top three academies, definitely top three scouting networks. And we've lost so much talent and we've lost a lot of English talent too. And, I think that that is important. That is important in football, especially in English football, you know, having good English players. And I think that the transfer ban was kind of, even though it was, wasn't ideal, it was a little, it was a little refreshing, refreshing to be like, okay, there's no expectations. Let's give these people a chance. And it all worked out. And we, I I think Frank did an unbelievable job the first season Mm -hmm. to get top four. Although, I would like to say I was one of the first on the block to be like, I don't know if Frank really understands tactics. And I think that when we went and spent a ton of money and, I, and the way football works now is that I don't think the players that Chelsea signed were all Frank's players. I think Ben Chilwell, Frank wanted to sign Ben Chilwell. I don't know if Frank really wanted to sign Kai Havers I don't really know if Frank wanted to sign Timo Werner. I even though they're world class players, I'm happy they're at the club. And I think that like this season became pretty, and and last season too, it was it was becoming obvious that I think Frank just wasn't tactically good enough for what he needed to do in the Premier League and the Champions League. And right, and then when you spend that much money, it becomes you know you have you have to you have to do better than and you have to do better and you have to play better. And it, it was, and I was we watching the game. I was watching the game then it felt like there was no, I, I didn't, I, i was watching the game and be like, I really feel like I see no tactical, um, like no tactical awareness and no, no attempt at playing a style I listened to Frank's interviews. And he was like, I want my team to be fluid and be able to do, to be able to do many different things. But there was no, you know, Pep Guardiola has a style like Klopp has a style and obviously they're able to adapt and change with the teams. But at the core of it is the philosophy and I, and Frank's a young manager. So you have to give him a little bit of leeway, but I just didn't think there was anything they were trying to do there. And, and, and at, at this level, it just, honestly, it it wasn't good. It wasn't good enough. And I, that's how I felt the whole season, like watching Chelsea. I was like, it just, we need a top. I was like, we need a top class manager in here. And um, I think, I think what you've seen from Tuchel Tuchel so far is uh, is proving that right a little bit because the players are obviously good enough. I just think they need a system that works, and you know, like strong. I think they need. I think Frank on the from what I've read, Frank on the training pitch was all about running, about effort, about you know. you know, kind of like the harder you work, the better you play, you know, like that old, you know, like a dad kind of like, if you work hard, you're going to be better. Like if you work hard, you're going to get a job. But in reality, that's that's not how football works. That's not how life works. You know, if you hard work and being the hardest worker doesn't always mean being the best or or getting the best results. You have to kind of be smart and you have to kind of have a system that you can kind of go back to and you have to kind of be working towards like the bigger process. And I just think that was missing in Frank's management.
2: So can you expand, can you expand a little bit more on on your criticism of his tactics? Cause I'm I'm just curious, um, like you're saying, is it as simple as, you know, Tuchel's playing through at the back or is it that, you know, like you said, just an
0: experience or was it a system or what was it? I think, I don't think Frank had a set system. I think that, there was like, I remember seeing a picture of one of last Frank's games and it was a picture of the midfield and it was six players within the space, probably 20 meters pretty, you know, with, There was, it was just a, there was no, there was no, like the, the left winger wasn't like, if you watch tukel now, you have the three center backs and then you have the, the, the three center backs allows for massive width. Cause you could play the You could play a wide left left wing back and a wide right wing back, which he's been playing Callum Hudson-Odoi, who's been actually the furthest player on the pitch. So then you have your, so you don't have a, you don't have a tent, but you have, you know, you have a forward striker and then you have, you know, Timo on the left and like Mason on the right, who can kind of tuck in and then play in the little spaces. other outside of the striker? And if you have Giroud, who can kind of, I don't know if you ever saw Giroud with Hazard, but it was one of my favorite partnerships to watch because Hazard would play in that kind of team position, kind of inside left. And Drew is one of the best at just bringing other players into the game. And I felt like, and I felt like with Frank, I wasn't seeing any of that. I, I also just wasn't seeing any set. It was as simple as just, I wasn't seeing, I didn't know what we were trying to do. Like each match towards the end it's better. Like, I don't what, like now I, with two hell, I look at the game I'm like, okay, this is how we're going to score. We're going to dominate possession because we have three at the back, which means that we can play quite a high line, and because we have three at the back, we have two sitting midfielders, and uh, in Kovacic and uh, Jorginho, or Kovacic and Conte. I hope I'm not the biggest fan of Jorginho. You know, we have a lot of we have a, we have those five players in the middle of the park who are going to win the fullback back a lot. From there, we're going to kind of we can able to pass it around quite a lot if we want to keep possession or if we want to score, then we can start spreading the play wide to the right wing backs. The, the forwards can pluck the right wing, the right wing back or the left wing back can bomb forward. The, the, it felt like there was a, from there you could try to get the byline and cut balls in, or you could switch it back to the other side, or you could start trying to bring it back into the inside and involve, you know, Pulisic or Timo or, or you can bring it into Giroud. who can lay it off. There, there feels like there is a, there's a way we are, there's a, they know how they're trying to get the ball into the, the net with Frank. I don't, I felt like the players were on the pitch kind of running around like, okay, like we're going to score, but much like me playing in uh recreational football with Owen, like, all right, we're going to score, but how like, uh, okay, like, we're just gonna, we're just going to get the ball in the net. Like we're going to do it. We're going to get the ball in the net.
1: Those, those teams had more issues than, uh, than any of any of Frank's, uh, Frank Stordi Evans. Our
0: teams had such.
1: Deep we'll, we'll save that for another time. Well, yeah. that, that's a conversation sort of like at a bar
0: podcast. But yeah. Um. So yeah, and I think that. And then it's funny because when Frank got fired, when Frank got fired for for a, for a few minutes, not for a few minutes for a few days, I was like, God, am I like, like what have I done? Like Frank Lampard was my fate. Not what have I done, but like what have I been supportive of? Was your favorite? It? With your Frank, Frank, Frank and Didier Drogba. I mean, Frank Lampard was an unbelievable player. I, I don't want to, I don't want to get into a who was better, Frank or Steven Gerrard. But I mean, what, what Frank did. I mean, being the highest scoring player for a football club as a midfielder is unbelievable. I mean, the amount of trophies he won. He was a fantastic. He was, he was a, the best player for Chelsea I've seen. I want
2: to ask you so. You know uh, I'm curious, you know, so when you think about all the you know Chelsea managers they've had, you know, there is definitely a theme of you know when you take a v b you take um even sorry to some extent, you know pretty much just mm-hmm. an athlete um, but you know, for the most part, even like Scolari right when he was there, like he was in <laughs> manager. I guess my question is like what what leads you to believe that a such a new manager who you knew was had managed one season at Derby county wouldn't have been able to figure it out you know and kind of in the long run while there might be growing pains for him might have been able to figure it out and actually be the right man for them in the long haul
0: past the season yeah Yeah. that's a great question i was thinking about that kind of before i came on um i think There is no, I am not saying that Frank won't be a great manager. I'm not, I'm not saying, I'm not saying that at all. I think I really hope, and I think he has, I think he has the qualities to be a good manager. I think he has a lot of solid man management qualities. I think that with a little bit, I think with probably a better, I'll be honest, I, I have a theory that I don't think his backroom staff were the best. I don't know if, you know, that his, I don't know if Jody Morris and his team, Mm-hmm. I'm no sorry, Jody. If you ha- end up listening to this podcast, I don't know if they were doing. You know, a, a manager doesn't take that much of training. You know, nowadays, you know, they oversee everything. But you know, a lot of it comes down to like if you go to a Liverpool training session. I hate to praise Liverpool, but like you'd be super, You'd be like, wow, Jurgen like Klopp, Jurgen Klopp's coaches are world class. Like these guys are unbelievable. What they're teaching. The level of detail they have, you know, how specific. I mean, Jurgen Klopp they have a freaking uh, throw-in specialist mm. to try to. How can they score from a throw-in? Yeah. You know, and I I don't know if if the level of the level of support for behind him was good. I always there was a theory that Roman Abramovich wanted to hire like a like a, a like an older manager to kind of be Frank's number two, and I always was like supportive of that to have a little bit more experience in the back room too. I think, I think the overall coaching and management team was inexperienced. And there's no reason to say Frank won't be a great manager. But I just think in football now, the stakes are too high to kind of afford, you know, you know what, we finish outside the Champions League. Mm-hmm. And then that affects, if, that affects, we still need to strengthen the squad in areas. You know, that affects how much money you get that and that affects who you can recruit. And then, you know, if you finish out, look at Arsenal, like if you start, if you start kind of going on this downward trajectory, next thing, you know, you're out of the champions league for eight years. You, you, you you start making stupid business decisions because you're desperate to get back in and it, and it comes like a spiraling effect. And the stakes in football are so high right now and everyone's battling for these four positions. And on top of that, everyone's battling for more money. And I think, and I, I wanted to bring this up, I, I think football's going to a direction of, like, a European Super League. Mm-hmm. And I think that everyone is nervous about that. And, yeah. and if you are, like, Arsenal aren't in the Super League right now, right? Chelsea are. Arsenal aren't. Tottenham are on the edge. If you kind of went off it right now, if Champions League became the Super League, so that's why people like you need to be in Europe. You need the exposure, um, and I just think that, and also Chelsea spent a ton of money, and, and you have to justify that with results. And and I like to win. I want I like to win. I want to win. <laughs> win. I don't want to be crap. yeah, watching Liverpool win a Premier League. Yeah. Oh <laughs> God, man,
1: that's oh just God. eating you up on the inside. Uh, it I was can eating me. Up. See it it, it here. was.
0: I, I I wanted to talk about this too. Is that. You know, you know Liverpool. Just to quickly on a on a little side tangent, people talk about Chelsea's rivalry with like Tottenham or Arsenal or West Ham or these kind of London rivals. For me, one of the biggest rivalries growing up was, and I remember in that when Mourinho first came, it was like two thousand four, two thousand five, two thousand six. It was when Benitez was there. Mm. Liverpool didn't. You know how Liverpool had. Oh, and you Liverpool had like a, a good ten year slump, right? Yeah. They had a good ten year slump, but they weren't in that slump in 2004, 2005, 2006. Obviously, they won a Champions League. Those Liverpool Chelsea matches were some of the best matches. You talk about atmosphere. I remember going to like the semi-finals in the Champions League or the the Carling Cup final with the or the semi-final with the ghost goal. It was some of the fieriest, best atmosphere. And ever since then, it and this is how that kind of like passion in England comes like you know like all my we would go to the chelsea games with my dad and all his friends and they would they would f and hate like i don't know if i can swear but they were. i they mean would,
1: we uh, we occasionally swear on the podcast so i'm not going uh, i'm not going no. to say though
0: but you know they 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 hated liverpool and like as a kid you just kind of soak that up yeah. and so I kind of like but then Liverpool kind of dropped off the radar for a while and then Klopp comes and it's hard not to like Klopp because you know he's German and he's like oh no, I'm just trying to do this and that <laughs> and then you're like and then and then you're like oh okay Liverpool like oh they they're playing good football but they won't win anything and next thing you know they win a Champions League you're like whoa whoa, whoa okay what's going on here? what what is going on with these these scousers up north and then Makes it, and then they win the Premier League, and now and now and then Jurgen starts to get, and now Jurgen drives me crazy. But uh, <laughs> so I, I think that so there's that a combination of everything I just said, and I just think that Frank was it was he was perfect for that. It's a tough one because like I think he was perfect for the season he had, but then I think the job became a little too big for him right now. Uh. a little little too big for him uh, this season, and I I think a lot of people would disagree with me, and that's fine. I mean, like, personally, if I was Man United, I would fire Matt. This is a hot take. Like, I think Ole Gunnar Solskjaer isn't a good enough manager for Man United, and if I was a Man United manager, I would have fired Ole Gunnar Solskjaer and gone and hired a Mauricio Pochettino. Yeah, for sure.
1: Well, (laughs) It's funny, because we've talked about Pochettino extensively in the podcast, especially when when Spurs fired him. but you bring up a lot of good points about specifically uh, what what Chelsea's been through, particularly under Lampard, but a little bit under sorry as well. But particularly under Lampard. So I remember when when they announced the hiring, I was thinking, "This is way too soon." Like I think he eventually will be a solid manager, just because mm-hmm. of the body. The one year he had at Derby, there were a lot of promising signs. It it was one year, yes, and they went from six to six. I mean, yes, they were in the playoff, but. The stick six to six it's not a massive improvement it's one season sure yeah. but then you go from Derby, who's in the championship to chelsea as the manager you're going to one of the top clubs in the world not just in england that in itself has a massive set of expectations yeah. and responsibility yeah. and if you are not delivering results my, my theory when he was hired was if he doesn't win a single trophy Within the first two years, he's gone, and I, clearly they were resigned to not winning a trophy this year. So they figured it yeah. better do it now.
2: I think that to Chris's point, I think you brought up a really good point, which is that the stakes of football now are so high, right? And I think the one thing you can really praise Chelsea for is that, particularly in the you know Abramovich era, but like that golden period, Chelsea continually wins. Like they they, they continually win you know, achieved top four. Obviously they won that Champions league in, in Munich. And so, you know, and you look on conversely, right. You look at, you look at Tottenham and you look at Manchester United and you look at Arsenal and the inconsistencies they've had. And, you know, you're absolutely right. There is for a big super club like this, there is this argument that if they were to hang around with Frank and, you know, miss the top four, and start this inconsistent directory all of a sudden maybe they don't you know come back to the top
0: right so yeah there's a very real risk in, in that yeah yeah it's like it's something as simple as like maybe they miss out on the top four and Tottenham get in the top four and then Tottenham and Chelsea are going for the same transfer target in the summer right and and Tottenham end up signing that guy and he becomes like Bruno Fernandes right like he's a game changer you know, and then the next season you miss out on it again. And then, then you go and you do like a Nicola Pepe, you, you spend 72 million on like someone absolutely crap. And then you put your whole budget at risk. And then you, and then all of a sudden you become like an arsenal who have made a bunch of, I'm sorry. I know you've had a lot of Arsenal fans on here, but like the one credit I got, I think Chelsea deserve a lot of credit for how well run they have become as, as a business as well as a football club and that's part of the reason like it wasn't gonna work with Frank right now because it just wasn't the smartest business decision in the long run. And and Frank had a great and Frank had, had a fantastic first season. Like what he achieved was, was fantastic. But there was also no pressure. You know, I yeah. think everyone at the club we could have finished 10th that season and people wouldn't have been bothered. We had we couldn't sign anyone, you know we had lost Eden Hazard, so when there's no pressure, it's a little bit easier to perform too. So,
3: yeah,
2: I want to ask you too. Um, no, it's it's a great point, and um, I, I think that one thing too that I, I'm curious. You talked about the identity of Chelsea, right? And you think that Chelsea loses identity. I'm curious what you think about that. I'm curious also, um, you know, as what do you think too? I mean. Lampard did bring a you know a possession style of play a little bit more attractive. I thought it was really exciting like to watch. Um do you do you as a Chelsea fan what do you think a, a, it's identity should be and do you care about wanting to see an attractive style of play or do you care more about the results and and if whatever say it goes at that point?
0: um I think that there were that first season with Frank I thought we were playing some attractive football this season. I don't think the football was that attractive, especially towards the end. Mm -hmm. I think it, it, I think that, I think we lost. Um, look, I I don't, I don't, I definitely, I want to, I want to, I think Chelsea's identity recently has been winning, you know, like that's Chelsea since Bramovich came on, like Chelsea's identity identity was winning, winning trophies and, under that John Terry, Frank Lampard, Didier Drogba, Ashley Cole era, like, yeah, the Chelsea identity was kind, and and Mourinho, especially Mourinho first time around, really, and this is kind of and this was the genius of Mourinho. Mourinho was like, everyone hates us, and he would play into that. He would, he kind of like would play into this like. There is an agenda. You remember, I remember. Do you ever remember, like, when he was like, "There's an agenda against Chelsea." You would say yeah. that in the media, and yeah. he, and what he did was he got he got everyone, all the players and the fans in this little bubble of like, yeah, people don't like us, but we don't give a we don't give a crap. Mm-hmm. We just we're just gonna go out there and we're we're gonna win and we're gonna be feisty and people aren't gonna like us and but we're gonna find a way to get it done, and you know that's like the Diego Costas. You know, Ces Fabregas, you know, that's enough. Like, those are the kind, that's the kind of like core Chelsea identity. But I don't think that sat well with Roman. I think Roman wanted Pep football. Roman tried to sign Pep like, two or three times from if the reporting is true. And Roman has always wanted like attractive, dominant, attacking football. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's why we're at a crossroads because we, our identity, at least since Abramovich has come in, is like we don't play bad football. It, by no means, Mourinho's football in 2004, 2005, 2006 is nowhere close to what he's like now. Something changed with him, but I, I'm not going to get into a whole Mourinho thing. We were playing pretty good football back then. You know, like we won the league, we, we beat someone eight, I think we built, beat Villa eight nil to win the league like the first time around. So it wasn't like we were playing bad football, mm. but we were also pragmatic and we got it. we And we got it done. And like, we would just kind of like leave it all on the pitch. Like when we beat Barcelona two one at the new camp to, to go to the champions league final, you know, when Torres, uh, when Torres scored that last minute, like it wasn't good football, but we just can't, we got it done and it was all about winning. But I think recently there's been a change of philosophy um, at the club. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm curious to see where the future is because I don't think Tuchel, I'm trying to say his name right. I don't think Tuchel is like renowned for like his specific style of football. I think he could be a little bit more of a, I, I, I'm hoping, I'm trying to be optimistic. I think he's a little bit more of like the get it done and win and, and play better football than Sari did because that was a low point for sure. But I think he's kind of a little bit more like a German, I'm getting like the vibes of like a German Conte. And I know that's because they play a similar system, but yeah. you know, solid at the back, but also like you go forward with with pace and vigor, and you know, it, it, intent to score. Rather than sorry, it, I was like, are we trying to win this football game? Like, are we tr- like are we just going to pass around the midfield for ninety minutes? Because I- I'd rather watch, I'd rather watch baseball. <laughs> it,
1: it's funny. It's funny you bring up. It's funny you bring up Tuchel because I think right now there's. Still, a lot of potential for him to get the best out of, especially the two German players, Werner and yeah. uh, and Havertz. But I think the one thing with with Tuchel is that he's based on where he's been in his career, and I, I think this this gets lost a lot of times. It, he basically followed for the first I don't know two major jobs he had in manager in management in football. He followed Klopp, not necessarily stylistically, but he literally followed Klopp from Mainz straight to Dortmund. Now he went over to PSG after, but. Part of part of what he inherited a little bit was that kind of high-intensity football that Klopp praised him. Now, tactically, he may have been a little different, but the same basic approach that you want players to press, you want to attack, you want to be very front-footed, yes. that's something that Chelsea, since, I mean, I, I guess, the first Mourinho stint is an exception, but really, when Chelsea have been successful... And I don't know if this is like you're saying like a culture switch, but under Conte and Mourinho in the second stint, both of those teams were incredibly defensively sound and yeah. destroyed you on the counterattack. I remember what, when I was watching Chelsea in, what was it, 2016-17, when they won the title under Conte, the best thing that I saw that season was right after they switched to a back three, he was allowing the players to play with whatever kind of flair they wanted. The first few games of that season, I was just like, Is he just like telling them not to like use any sort of skill whatsoever on the ball? Once, once that happened, once they started expressing themselves and throwing back heels on counterattacks and, you know, spraying 40 yard passes across the field, like that's when you knew like, okay, this team has a DNA of, you know, a Mourinho, Chelsea, a Chelsea that's going to win the title. Since then, it's been sorry. Who's kind of known for sorry ball. If, if it even works in England, which, Kind of, but not really.
0: Think, I I mean, he won a lot of games, like the credit to him there. But it did it. it I thought sorry for was like they were like sorry for was fast. It's you know it was not. It was not no, bad at all. It's very it was-
1: very methodical. And then and then with Lampard, like Willie was saying, I saw the same thing. I saw a lot of he wants to have the ball. He wants to play a very possession based kind of big team football, if you will. You know, like all all of the big clubs these days. Their their mo is have. All of the ball dominate the game, you know, looking at you, Pep. Um, and it that just made it that just made the signings all the more confusing because when Mm -hmm. you looked at what Chelsea were last season, you thought, okay, there's potential there in the squad. The young players are coming good, there's a lot of attacking, a lot of attacking power defensively, still need a little bit of help. And what do they do in the summer? They signed a left back, to be fair, also signed a goalkeeper, but then. A forward, a number 10 slash fluid attacking player in Kai Havertz, uh, another attacking player in Ziyech. And it, it, it just doesn't really make sense because especially when you look at the profiles of, and, and Willie and I have talked about this a lot, I've, I've had this take since September, but Timo Werner is probably the worst signing for the club based on what they needed. Chelsea do not need a player to run in behind. They need a player who can open up space for other players or not necessarily make a run when you need to, but just to draw someone out of their position to play in between the lines. Timo Werner's not that kind of player. Timo Werner's a one-trick pony. He runs in behind and scores on like one out of five chances he gets. And they're usually one-on-ones with the keeper.
2: I want to jump in here and I want to ask Chris, right? So... You know, I'm a Chelsea fan, too, and obviously not to the extent that you are. Oh, good, good man. Yeah, no, thank you. Yeah. But you're, you're, you know, you're, I mean, huge fan and
0: bigger than that. not, man, we're, we're all in it together. So. Blue is the color.
2: So I'm curious. So, I mean, for me and, you know, similar, you know, I wa- I started watching Chelsea and I'm a little bit biased because, you know, I started watching Chelsea when I was, you know, in middle school, like fifth, sixth grade. And, you know, Lampard, like, I love watching Lampard, too. I, I have a couple of his and, and my my biggest thing, too, is, like, you talk about – I just want to ask, I mean, how much can you blame – I know it's a simple point, but how much can you blame Frank when the players are underperforming so badly? Yeah. I mean, how much can you blame Frank if, you know, Christian Pulisic and and, and Timo Werner look awful, you know, or or – if the, if Kai Havertz, you know, looks terrible, like how much can you blame a player? I mean, a manager when realistically they're underperforming. And I understand, you know, what you're saying about the way the team, it looks structured. Right. But I want to see next season after this quote unquote manager bump is gone. Right. What, uh, like what's going to happen then? Yeah. So like, what's your take on like, I mean, do you think that the, this squad is good enough? I mean, do you think this squad is
3: title-worthy
0: squad? I know, I I don't think the the squad's good enough to win a title right now. Uh, I think that people were ahead of themselves to think yeah. that they they were. Um, I think we're missing a world-class number nine. Team of Werner Berner not number nine is I yeah. think that's pretty obvious. Um, and I am holding hope for uh, Mister Erling Haaland. To make his way to southwest London, and it's done for you. But and it, but to to your point about Frank, yeah, I I would have liked to I would have liked to see Frank have more time. But I'm also I'm also trying to be a realist in like the sense that and my my feelings was this was you can't you can't get rid of Timo Werner like you can't just sell him. For a massive loss, you can't. It, in football, it's just the way football is right now. Is that like you can get rid of the manager, and and, and like for Chelsea, getting rid of the manager has worked. It's it's worked pretty. It's worked pretty well, and um, I think that if it had continued on this path. And the, I just thought it was going down a really dangerous path. I think that, like, I think the fans were, um, I think the fans were turning on each other. I think it was just creating like a massive divide. From the reports that have kind of come out after he was fired, sounds like you know Frank suffered like so many Chelsea managers have suffered from a, a, a conflict of interest at the top of the club you know, not getting on with people on top. And I think Frank was probably a little naive in thinking that he could kind of change that attitude. And I think Tuchel has come in and been like, because Tuchel, Tuchel, I'm curious to see how this works out. Tuchel fell out with the PSG board and the Borussia Dortmund board, Hmm. right? I think he's coming to this job being like, hey, you guys do whatever you're going to do. I'm just going to manage the club. I'm just going to coach the team. And I think Frank might have thought he could change uh, a kind of culture at Chelsea yeah. because this culture has been here for the last four or five years. Massive player power, massive power up in the, in the boardroom. And I think Frank thought he could change that and it didn't work. And it kind of came back to, to bite him in the arse. The
2: and, and so my, like, what I would say is I, I completely, I completely agree with you. And I think that that's part of Frank's downfall was the, you know, the, like you said, the, 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 revolt of the players and his relationship with supposedly Marina Gorskaya. But the thing that I am like really upset about as a Chelsea fan, who, you know, is just such a big Frank Lampard. I mean, I was a fan. No, I mean, I, I, I,
0: I'm, I'm with you there, man. Like he was, he was, I don't, he was so, he was so good. And like, he was such a surf into the Chelsea football. That's such a soft spot, man. But like what,
2: what, what really annoys me is like when you read, like if you read like that athletic article that came out, right, and it had all the inside information, right? Mm-hmm. Like, how can you criticize? And maybe this is some extent where experience comes in because you can learn to deal with egos and tweak the system based on who you have. But when you read Laporte and like, for example, right, Frank Lampard really wanted Declan Rice he thought it would have fixed the midfield. He kept asking for Declan Rice and they like got annoyed because he was a Chelsea product and they thought it would be bad for the club to like bring back someone who, you know, had previously been there, but it's just like, and supposedly most of the other signings he hadn't signed off on either. So my point mm-hmm. is how can you as a, how can you really judge a manager for when he has a vision for what he wants to, and maybe you could say maybe he didn't see it, but supposedly, like, when Frank Lampard has the vision for the, for the kind of way he wants to play and the players he wants to bring in, but the board brings in people that he doesn't want at all. Like, he, I'm guessing, like, look, I could be wrong, but I'm guessing Pep and Jurgen Klopp and, you know, all these other managers, like, you know, Jurgen Klopp, Mike Edwards, like, has a lot of power. right? But Jurgen Klopp has a say in the kind of players he wants. But it sounds yeah. like Frank Lampard really didn't have any control whatsoever of what they were doing. And it was like it's just unfair if he actually did indeed have a way he wanted to play, and they would sign players that, like you're saying, like Timo Werner, like which he's hard to fit in the team, you know. For example.
0: Um, yeah i i i i like when I started i i i totally agree with you, and I thought like I remember reading that athletic article and being like, oh man, this is not. And I tried to, like, when I was criticizing Frank earlier, which I'm, like, I'm surprised I led with such strong criticism of Frank, I really tried to make it only about the football I'm watching on TV, right? That's and I And I, that's what I'm, that's what I'm trying to, that's what I'm, at least I'm coming from as a fan, is, like, what am I seeing? Yeah. And what, and, and where, what is, and, like, what, and what is translating to me is, like, like I said, a, a little bit, like, a little bit tactically naive. Mm. Um, and also, I also think that the one thing that has really gone against Frank, and I would have loved to have seen in a different reality, I think. I think Frank may still be in a job today, and may have, and we may be in a very mu- a much better position than we were when Frank left, if there were still fans in the stadium. I think a full stand bridge backing Frank Lampard could be like a 5% boost to a team. And that makes a big difference. Mm-hmm. And I think that we've, I'm very disappointed. We missed out on that. And I think even last season, you kind of saw that because the, the squad was not good enough to finish in the top four. And we did. And I, and uh, that's probably a little bit of the new manager bounce, you know, it's, a, it's part of the fact that, you know, these players like grew up with Frank as their hero. So as much, as much as I was saying, I think it was ready for Frank to leave. I also think that we, I also feel terribly. I do feel terribly for him. and I think that things could have gone differently if COVID didn't happen mm-hmm. and like the fans were still in the stadium. And I think even in the few games that Chelsea had fans back for like the three weeks when fans were allowed in the stadium, like mm-hmm. there was a little bit of a better performance from the team. Mm-hmm. So, so that's where I feel. And I want to quickly say something about what Owen said about Timo Werner. I, I think I, I, I've been seeing something from Timo recently, so I'm not going to go ahead and say he's like a terrible signing, but I do, I think I, I do agree with you because I don't think Timo is the replacement of Eden Hazard. And I think that like, he is not an Eden. He's not even close to an Eden Hazard, not just in like talent and skill level because Eden Hazard, Eden Hazard actually, by the way, might be the best player who ever played for Chelsea in terms of pure talent. Hmm. I, I, I took a bit of a hot take. But I know Frank, I, uh, Frank it he doesn't have the career of everyone else, but my God, Eden Hazard was, I love, I love small footballers with a low center of gravity. Like I love, like they're, I just, that is so fun to watch. And Eden Hazard was unbelievable. But so I, I, I just wanted to say that I kind of agree with, well, I'm not as harsh in my criticism of Timo because I, I I'm holding out on the future for Timo, but I do. I do think he was a strange signing in retrospect, especially because I didn't watch a lot of Timo in Germany. But I, I just assumed he was a number nine, and we do need a number nine because I, li- I like I liked Tammy, I love Giroud, but Giroud's not an every game footballer. And I like Tammy, but Tammy isn't good enough in the big games, and we like need like a Haaland or something. And I thought Timo Werner was that guy, but watching him play, I'm like. This guy is not a straight up number nine. Like this guy's not gonna score thirty goals a season. Like, you don't
2: think that Tammy Abraham could score twenty twenty goals this season.
0: I think if you didn't play, if you played only teams outside of the top eight, I think you hmm. score 25, 30 goals a season. I don't, but I don't think like I would love to see. I would love to see the stats on what his goals against the big eight, like the, the, the top eight teams are, because I, I don't think it's over. Like five or six goals. Sure. But like, you know, I mean, is it hard? it's a harsh criticism, but I mean, like, yeah, he like scored like 30 goals in the championship, but mm-hmm. I, I think that, and like he scores a lot against the smaller teams. Because, and, and I, that's a great quality to have and a fantastic striker to and having a squad. Like you need that to win titles, but you need a Diego Costa. You like, you need someone who's going to score in the big games. And Absolutely. like you needed, you needed Didier, you need sorry. I can't believe I used Diego, over Didier, Didier is, the prime example like Didier could go missing for 70 minutes. You could be like watching a football match. Like where the hell is Didier Drogba? Like, what is he, what has he, is he playing in this match? He scored two goals in five minutes and win the game against like your biggest rivals.
2: Well, well, I would say, I mean, I definitely, I, I agree with you. I, I do agree that they need someone like that, and I don't think Abraham is good enough either. But I will say that to some extent, Abraham could be like that, right? I mean, he can go, he can have kind of a poor game, and then, you know, be around the box and just it. Yeah. You know, he's that kind of natural
0: foot that just yeah, he's a, he walks in. he's like a yes, I I agree with you. I I do I, I that's a that's a really valid point. You know, but he's like he's like a poacher, right? Like he's kind of gonna go be in the good yeah. spot. What I mean is like. He, Didier would just be like not doing anything and then just win the game. Like he'd just do something and he'd just win the game like that. Like he'd just take the game into his hands and he'd be like, "I'm gonna score." Diego Costa had that too. Like Diego had had that. Eden has it. I know Eden. Wa- Eden had it. No, Eden had it. Eden had that quality too. And like, there's always been a Chelsea player, and and all great club teams have that. Like Salah at Liverpool, he yeah. has he has that quality. You know, De Bruyne or Aguero, like. The, the the teams that win trophies have a player who just like goes like, you know what, I'm going to win this game. And, and rather than it kind of being a consequence of like being in the right position in the box at the right time to score the tap in or, you know, like uh, scoring deflected goal, like the, 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 the great teams and the great players, they, they just grab it by the scruff of the neck and they go like, I'm going to win this game and they do something special. And I think Chelsea's missing that. At the top of the pitch right now
1: yeah it's funny because on the subject of tino Werner, the the reason i had the take on him when he signed for chelsea over the summer the reason i had this take was i watched him in the world cup very very closely in 2018 so there were kind of rumblings that he would eventually that liverpool would eventually go after him because he very much fit the profile of asala amane a very pacey attacking player not necessarily Strictly a winger, not necessarily a st- strictly a striker, but just a very pacey player who runs in behind. Mm. With Germany, he was invisible for every single game they played. He he didn't show up in any of their games. And that is because Germany play a way that it looked like Chelsea for a minute were kind of heading that direction under Lampard. Germany love to have 75-80% of the ball. They play their fullbacks basically as wingers, and they Basically pass you to death, like you know, some of the great Barcelona teams that we've seen. With with Timo Werner, he can't necessarily unlock a defense by just where he's positioned. He needs to be able to use his pace. And he needed a team like Liverpool to to get the most out of it. And when when we were talking about the rumor of is he gonna sign for Liverpool, is he gonna sign for Chelsea? Is he not gonna come to England? The big thing was always where is he going to get the most out of his talent? And that was at Liverpool. At the same time with Liverpool, he would not start. They were not looking for someone to immediately start every single game. Liverpool got their guy. It just wasn't Timo Verde. So it's one of those things where stylistically, it just did not make any sense to me. And he could very well prove me wrong. I've been wrong on so many takes before. I mean, that's just the nature of of talking about sports. It's the nature of hot takes. But as of now... I mean, he scored a goal, and that's a headline. That for a striker, it should be when you don't score a goal or when you go he also, five, he also six has games.
0: Nineteen also and 19 goals and assists this season, which is like higher than Jamie. it's higher than Jamie Vardy. It's higher than Firmino. It's higher than Mane. There's two Liverpool players right there. <laughs> but uh, uh, so I. I get, I, I I agree with you. I think it's also like a shock when he's like, okay, I'm like the quickest guy in the premier league, but like, that doesn't matter when Burnley or Newcastle or uh, Crystal Palace sit in their own, you know, in their own 18 yard box. Like, what are you going to do? Like, it doesn't matter. Like you can't, you're not going to get past the last man. Like you got to do something different. And I've been really disappointed with Timo's ability to take people on like, uh, and his first touch has been his first touch, especially has been like, Oh my God. And like, and, and his dribbling ability has been – his dribbling ability in his first touch more so than his finishing because I think that's a – I really think finishing is a confidence thing. Like I've seen him score on YouTube. I've seen him score like 100 goals. Like you can't score 100 goals and not have some quality finishing. I think that's a confidence thing. So I, I think that um, – I think that what I've been most disappointed on is it's like I'm like, okay, beat this man. Like beat this man. Like just, you know, take him on, beat the guy, and he doesn't do it. And that's what – but I think that they're, they're figuring out the system and how to get the most of him, and I think I genuinely think he's been a much better player since Tuchel has come in. I wanted to ask you something, Owen. Yeah. Just on the just to take the copper off Chelsea. I wanted to ask you something about Liverpool. Yeah. Look, I wanted to be on here and just flag off Liverpool, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, I, I knew also, it. But I, but I also want. But it, I've been thinking about this. So you talked about how the big teams now are. You know, they want to dominate possession. They want to have 78% possession. And in watching Liverpool, I have seen Liverpool become a very, very possession-dominant team. Very I feel like I watch you guys and my God, Liverpool have a lot more possession than I remember in those first two or three years under Klopp. Hmm. And I even thought this when you guys won the title last year and I'm really, this isn't really meant as a dig at Liverpool, but like, I also felt you guys won the title, but towards the end, you guys weren't playing that good at football. And I felt like you kind of stumbled over, even though you won it by a ton, like you kind of like, you know, you kind of like walked to the finish line a little bit. And I think what I've noticed in Liverpool is that like, I don't think that this kind of like transition to more to like, dominate not that you guys didn't have a lot of possession but there's like kind of 75 70 80 possession games I don't think it helps Liverpool and I think you guys have lost your kind of sharp like I just feel like Liverpool looks sluggish and slow and like there's not that like the the, the first two or three years on the club was just it didn't matter if you guys had a lot of the ball it was like when we have the ball we're gonna go full out and when we don't have the ball we're gonna go full out. And, and I just think that Liverpool lost a little bit of that, like that kind of special spark that even though I, 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 I'm not like, I'm not a, a fan of Liverpool and, uh, and actively root for them not to do well, <laughs> I didn't I did really enjoy that Klopp style of football. And I felt like that. I really haven't, I don't feel like I've seen a lot of that in the last so, year. And I just wanted to see what you thought of that, that kind of.
1: Yeah, no, and it's definitely a valid point to bring up. I think the one thing that I remember, particularly from when Klopp came to the club, was very much a, he doesn't give two shits about how much of the ball we have. He's just going to yeah. he's gonna institute his pressing and counter-pressing, and we're going to score five, six goals, having 30% of the ball. After he got a full preseason and a full transfer window to... Kind of go in and strengthen the team as he saw fit. Liverpool became a, a possession team against yeah. you know fourteen against you know thirteen of the other nineteen clubs in the league. Yeah, against the big six, predominantly you know your Manchester Cities, your Arsenal's, uh, and your Chelsea's. He would kind of put more emphasis on not letting them play their game, and to do that you have to get your players to be at the top of their fitness level and press and run like crazy. And he found out very quickly in January of that year, that's not sustainable because January 2017, I think Liverpool won. I remember that. They won zero and lost five. I want to say it was, it was a horrendous month. And what I think Klopp learned that month was that number one, no winter break in England is just is ridiculous. Uh, you know, players are human. It's, I get playing all the festive fixtures, but you got to have like two weeks off. Just based on the sheer number of games that you play. But over time, the next couple of years after that, he started to to be more of this possession base. And the one game I think that that sticks out to me is kind of the shift in style. And and yes, against the you know the non Big Six, if you will, the, or the rest of the Big Six, yeah. It's, it's not really the emphasis on possession. It's more so just you know not letting them play their game, especially away from home. But it, it was the game against Sheffield United at home uh, last season or the season before. Uh, no, it was last season because was Sheffield United. Um, it was a 2-0 win at Anfield, and Liverpool had 80% of the ball and completed like 900 passes. Mm. And Klopp was saying in his press conference after the game, that was our game plan, to literally pass them to death. That's not something that 2016, 2017 Klopp would have done. He, he learned very quickly that in order to play a 38-game season in England, to play the way he wants his teams to, you, you need to be adaptable. And so that's part of the reason that, especially after um, Project Restart in, in the summer, that Liverpool kind of started to coast a little bit. Because they had been coasting in the vast majority of their games for... 70 75 minutes. And the last 10 or 15 would be just an onslaught of wave after wave after wave of attack. And that's what made them so good uh, mm-hmm. in in parts of the the 2019-20 season, especially up until uh pretty much up until the Watford game. Um it it was just a case of of he he got his team to manage the game a lot better and that was something that made the difference. Like I mean, yes, he still had You know, against City, against United away, against Arsenal away, against Chelsea away, he would still have his team press and play kind of that heavy metal football. But he also learned that hey, this is a long season, and we're only in what say November. There's a lot of football left, and you know they had been top every year at at one point or another, kind of late in the calendar year, but hadn't gotten over the line, and that's because. By the time, you know, late March, April, and then early May rolls around, your players are just mentally exhausted. Yeah. And so it's one of those things where it's not necessarily just he's changed his style completely, but more so he's kind of gotten his teams to adapt a little bit. And, you know, I've talked about this season extensively on the podcast, and I have a little bit left to say, you know, when, when we get to our little hot takes bit, I have this rant specifically about Klopp. Uh, that I want to go on. And it's basically, you know, this season has created issues that yes, Liverpool should have strengthened in the summer, but knowing FSG, knowing the way they do business, that was never really going to happen. Now that they have a a genuine need to do so and a, a willing, a necessity to support a manager.
0: They should have bought a a center back January 1st. Exactly. And the reason, the reason they wanted, They they
1: wanted Kabak in the summer. They got Kabak on loan from Schalke uh, in in the January window, but they wanted him over the summer. The only reason they couldn't get him in the summer was because of money, and FSG didn't want to. They didn't want to operate at a loss during a pandemic. And only after months of necessity and Klopp and Michael Edwards, I like, guess, convincing the board that they needed money, did they go out and spend half a million on a twenty year old Turkish kid and another like one point five million on a 25 year old who could still come good. I mean Ben Davis is is not necessarily he's not gonna start a whole lot, but he's incredible cover, you need, you especially need for that Exactly, exactly. And they didn't get that over the summer and they figured out very quickly. The, the one thing I'll say, because I do want to get onto a little bit of golf, because we have some a couple things to discuss, and I want to be cognizant of your time. Yeah, as definitely,
0: well. definitely. I know. Sorry, I could talk about Chelsea and, and football all day. My bad. No, no, no. This is great. I,
1: I'm just, you know, I we don't want to keep our guests for too long, and and you know, having you on has been a a, a very much needed perspective, I think, from someone who who grew up a um, lot closer to the game, like geographically, <laughs> literally. Um, but the one thing I'll say about Liverpool this year is that. When you remove three of the most important players of the team, well, really two of the most important player, one of them being the leader at the back, you're forcing players who are leaders in midfield to move back. And the players they signed in the summer in Jota and Tiago, have both missed extensive amounts of time, which also creates a hole in the, in the squad depth. But at the same time, it, it exposes a, a flaw that it's kind of been a, it, it's been a thing with Liverpool if you take Jordan Henderson out of the picture since Steven Gerrard left. It's a leader in midfield who's going to put a foot into a challenge if he needs to. And they haven't had one of those under Klopp. Mm,
3: yeah.
1: You know, sans Henderson. And Henderson has been forced to play out of position a ton. He's yeah. been playing center back this season. He played a yeah, number six two seasons ago. His, he, I mean, he's, he's more of a number eight, kind of a true box-to-box, high-energy, pressing midfielder. But he hasn't had that opportunity just because of injuries and and things that have happened. And then James Milner's played left back. He's supposed to be that guy too. He's played left back almost more than he's played center mid. So there's a lot of things that have have made Liverpool Liverpool this year, also winning a title and COVID and and yada yada yada. But I'm not necessarily too focused on that this season. But that is something that I think Willie and I have certainly talked about a little bit. But the kind of reasons that you see a drop off and the drop off is not as steep as people may understand i mean yes losing back to back games at home and losing three yeah, or, sorry it's, losing it's three a in a row this season
0: it's going to go up and down i, I understand yeah. I, I don't think it's as bad as people are saying
1: and the last thing is is fans we talked about this a little earlier and i wanted to bring up this point having fans when you are supposed to run and run and run mm-hmm. it it makes a difference because yeah, yeah. in the man Look city at the game yeah, Barcelona, and then the Man City game in 2018 when they were undefeated at that point in the season. They came to Anfield, and Robertson made like an 80-yard pressing run. He doesn't make that run in an empty stadium. He makes that run when there's 55,000 angry scousers yelling at, at uh, Pep Guardiola. That's when, he, that's when that happens. So, realistically, having fans... Or not having fans in the stadium has had more of an impact for Liverpool, I think, than most other clubs, mm-hmm. just because of the way they play. I'll to argue against that.
3: So, so, to
2: argue. so I got, I got uh, two questions, and I'll ask them to Chris and Owen. You can chime in too. Mm. Both big picture. So one is, do you think Liverpool is better or worse with Thiago in the midfield? And the second question is, I'm curious because I've asked Owen about this: is do you think that this is would you chalk this up as, like you said, a number of circumstances with COVID and injuries? Or do you think, like, the, the pressing and the energy levels and stuff, that this is more of a long-term problem, kind of like you saw with Pochettino a little bit towards the end of Tottenham's reign, where they just lost that kind of heavy metal football nature and that this is something that maybe it's the beginning of the end of the Klopp era and they'll, they'll never reach the heights again?
0: Okay, I'm going to answer that question with what I think. I I think that um, I that, that obviously I'm going to answer the question of what I think. I don't <laughs> it's such a terrible statement. I just made like that. Obviously, I'm going to do that. <laughs> I mean, um, I'm going to say something. Uh, no, but I think the Thiago thing. Both of these kind of tie into the same point. And I'll uh, to your second question, I'll answer that first. I think that Liverpool could benefit from some from pretty strong, you know, if Salah wants, to, maybe that's a, that's a oh, I'm going to say it's a hot take. If Salah wants to leave, maybe you sell him for a hundred million quid mm. and buy someone else. If you're going to play that intense, look at Jota. He came in and he flourished because if you're going to play that rock and roll football, maybe you do need a little bit of a turnover because maybe if you're playing that for four years, maybe it becomes a little bit, oh, man, like this is, you know, and like you, the players might start to, you know, want something else. But that's just, I don't know, but that's just my, that was just something that kind of came to mind. But more than that, I think that Liverpool do have, and, and this is to the Thiago point, because the Thiago is like a player who kind of, you know, he wants to dictate possession, and I don't think he's been as good as people were hoping. But I think, and this, and the Thiago thing goes to this next point that I'm going to make. I think right now Liverpool are trying to play like a little bit like Man City. If mm-hmm. you wanna do that, you're not gonna win another Premier League as long as Pep is in the Premier League. Mm-hmm. So, if you, so I know that the pressing exhausts the players and um it's you it's it takes its toll and it has a lot of risk to it. But you're not gonna beat Pep at his own game and and you're going to look like look at what's happened in the league like you you're not going to win another premier league doing this so i think liverpool do have to have to figure out how to get back to that the way they won the title and how good they were before this season because yeah i just don't i think man city are too good they're too good you know at this at, at the way they play football and and liverpool's answer to it has to be their and I, I I want Chelsea to be the answer to it. Like, I don't want Liverpool to be the answer to it. But you're not going to beat Man City at your own game, so you've got to figure out an antidote. And you've got to do something different. And Liverpool did. And they and they, and they won. They lost the Premier League on, what, 98 points? Is that what it was? It's unbe- that's unbelievable. Like, yeah. They lost the Premier League on... 90, I mean, that's un- was it 98? 90,
1: 97 points.
0: 97, and sorry. To, 97. to come second. I mean, it... There's, That's unbelievable.
1: Yeah, it's it's absurd, and and it's one of the things that the only reason they didn't win the title that year is because they had you know Pep Guardiola and his limitless resources at Man City, and and I wanted to make that point earlier that if if he would have gone to Chelsea, oh, they they would have had money to support his lifestyle. Don't worry, don't worry. Yeah. Um, I'll chime in really quickly, and I do want to get over to golf real quick because there's yeah. there's an important point I want to talk about. Willie and I have had this discussion a lot, but what I'll say about Thiago is that. He hasn't played in a Liverpool side that Klopp prefers as his, for, as his absolute first choice. He has not played in that team. Klopp hasn't had that team since October. And the game where... The, 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 really, the first game where he had that opportunity was, believe it or not, against Chelsea. And he was the best player on the pitch mm-hmm. in the 45 minutes he played. Or he's one of the best players, if not the best player. So, the, the, the reason Klopp bought Thiago... Is so that he can slow the game down a little bit and let the team dominate possession and control the game a lot more. Because he understands that you can only run full speed for so many seasons in a row without a break. Mm-hmm. There's also the lack of a preseason that hurt it as well. Yeah. So what I'd be interested in seeing is assuming COVID is under control by the summer and teams are allowed to have, you know, their full preseasons. It'll be weird because the Euros this summer, which kind of throws everything off, but Assuming the team has a full preseason and players on international duty have a full enough preseason for Klopp, I'd be interested to see, assuming everyone's healthy, if Thiago is in that preferred 11. Because to me, he would be in that preferred 11. They didn't buy him to be a squad player. They bought him to start. Yeah. So for me, if he's playing a 4-3-3, it's him and Henderson as the two midfielders in front of Fabinho as the holding midfielder. Up top, same front three, and then Back four is the same. Allison. there you go. That's the team. Or with Diego Jota, they could play a 4-2-3-1, have Jota as the number 10, Firmino as the number nine, Salah right, Mane left, and then Fabinho and Thiago as the two midfielders at the base. Because Thiago has the incredible passing range, and watching him just pass a football is one of the most incredibly satisfying things you'll ever do in your life. Just, Just watch Thiago at his best with Bayern Munich. Just unbelievable technical ability Mm -hmm. so either one of those two would be ideal for whatever klopp wants to do with the team but he hasn't had the luxury of doing that because he's had to play henderson at center back fabinho at center back and fabinho's been hurt obviously van dyke and gomez and matip and he hasn't had the team he wanted and then there's also you have to deal with a pandemic no preseason and a championship hangover because that's a real thing let's let's Really yeah, know.
0: but to, at the risk of sounding like Roy Keane, you, it doesn't. Uh, you just you just you go and you win the championship again. I I, I I every point you made, I I I am actually I'm fully on board with. The only thing that I don't agree with that I hear some Liverpool fans talking about is a championship hangover. The great teams don't have championship hangovers. They go win another one, you know. And that's,
1: uh, yeah, that's true. But I, I think the one thing that makes a difference is is when you.
2: What happened to Man City after their their title? They won back to
1: back. They won back to back, but they're third. The
2: second title after the second title. I mean they, they
0: dropped off, you know. Yeah, I, and, and right. they did. They did. People, yeah. they 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 do drop off. It's it's. And then it's, they
1: spent, and then they spent money on Ruben Diaz and, and more fullbacks. My-
0: <laughs>
1: they're just like, oh, we have a problem. Let's spend some money in a pandemic because yeah. yeah, what what is financial fair play?
0: To kind of to kind of like wrap. To kind of like just like wrap things up, talk about Man City, I want to and bring back me back to Chelsea a little bit. I want to just quickly point out that like Chelsea gets so much stick, and and actually Liverpool's got a little bit of stick too for the amount of money they've spent. Both of those clubs are well run, and like we talked about, football high stakes. Like it's a, it's a multi-billion-dollar industry. Both Liverpool and Chelsea are well-run clubs. Yeah. They've taken a lot of profit. They 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 break even, you know. They, you know, in in cases they're actually making money, which in is actually quite rare in football to not be in debt. Man City is not that. Man City far surpasses anything Abramovich has ever done, and I just want, I just, I have to defend my club a little bit because I get, I've been, I've, I've heard all season Chelsea spend, all Chelsea do spend, spend, spend. Chelsea. Have made like in the last ten years, like they've made money on their transfers, which is unbelievable. So I just, I just wanted to, I just wanted to add that in real fast. Not well, so. to
2: mention that Manchester City got bogusly released from their their penalty.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Whoever was overseeing that case was definitely slipped some money under the yeah. under the table.
0: Hey, you want to fly to uh, the United Arab Emirates?
1: Yeah, yeah. No problem. fly through <laughs> the Middle East. We'll show you a good time. Yeah, exactly. And what is we'll sneak this financial fair play stuff out the uh, out the door. It's unbelievable. Um,
0: that Chelsea got the two-year the two the two transfer ban, and they didn't get anything. But they're Chris, probably going to win the Champions League this year too. Chris,
2: I want to ask you before we we move to golf. Um, what are your thoughts on the prospects of
0: Chelsea in the Champions League? Do they have a chance against Atletico? Yes, I don't think. It's, I think Atletico have kind of you know. At the, I'm going to use a, a GameStop analogy because I lost a lot of money in GameStop. You know, they, oh no! <laughs> they've hit 400. Atletico have hit 427, and they're you know, they're not going to the moon. I, I think that the kind of peak Simeone era, uh, era, sorry, has has is on the decline. I, I don't, I don't, I don't look at the Atletico squad, and I'm not terribly frightened. Please have me back on the pod if if we lose, and I have to <laughs> eat my own words. But also if we win, but I'm actually feeling pretty confident. Okay. On paper, I actually think Chelsea might have a better squad squad than Atletico. So I'm. Uh, that's a bold statement, but yeah. it, the podcast is called Hot Takes. But
1: yep, Hot, hot Takes only. That's I don't what we're think all Chelsea
0: about. are going to go further than the quarter or semifinals, but. I'm to be
2: honest. I I'm, I'm glad you said that. That makes me feel great. I mean, I I personally am scared. I think Atletico has played so well this season that I I agree that they're not. I don't think, despite how well they've done in La Liga, they still don't scare me as the team that made two Champions League finals. But yeah, they're so well grooved and they're they're playing so well this year. And I don't know. They scare me. I feel like this is, but. You know, we'll see. We're, you know, we're informed. So hopefully.
3: Uh,
0: you know. Two quick things, and then we can move on to golf. I just want to note, first of all, um, while I was doing a little, like, I was hanging out on my laptop, just kind of catching up on football before we got on, I didn't realize Barcelona had played 16 games in the Liga and won all 16 games. Uh, it's kind of unbelievable. Um, Unless the La Liga website is wrong, but.
2: Oh, you're I- talking about. Barcelona is not. No, they're in like 30 or 40. What?
1: No, they have. They haven't. They're. They've definitely lost this season. Like yeah, multiple they, they times this season.
2: Lost really badly, and then they. They've now won a bunch in a row. But um, oh, okay. Well,
0: because the no, Liga website is wrong.
1: Yeah, they're wrong. They've. They've lost four games this year.
0: Yeah, the fourteen, four, and four. Yeah. yeah, I'm looking at the website right now, and Atletico, they,
2: Athletico, seventeen wins, four draws, one loss. Yeah, that, that's.
0: That's yeah. good. Oh, what that was! Cr- I don't, maybe I was reading, reading the
1: wrong thing. It's probably La Liga pushing some Barcelona narrative. I, I wouldn't be surprised. I don't know what they were
0: reading. I don't know what I was reading, but I saw. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway. I'm, yeah. I'm glad I'm I'm wrong about. That. I'm I'm glad that that was wrong. Because I was like, I had a whole bunch of takes about Barcelona that I was ready to share, and I was very shocked. I was like, they played sixteen games and won sixteen. Maybe I'm so wrong. But yeah. Um,
1: no, it's it's funny because because Willie still thinks they're going to win the Champions League. I think Willie, I think you doubled down on that take last week. Uh, on the pod so we'll chris after this fixture is done sometime in march we'll have to have you back on and and really at at, at just some point later on in the season we'll have to revisit this discussion
0: my my other thing i was going to say is who's everyone's picks to win the Champions League? yeah i've got athletico you've got athletico
3: what about you owen (sighs)
1: so i don't want to say man city because, you know, I, I, I think... I have a take about Pep Guardiola that I've, I've shared before. I'll reiterate it a little later. Um,
3: mm-hmm.
1: I'm just going to go for chaos. I'm going to say Juventus. Oh, I love that. I love that. It, it's just because, because yeah. they have no shot at I winning love, Serie A right now. I would love right to now.
0: see Juventus win. I would love to see Ronaldo win it, a sixth. I-
1: all I care Seriously. about really is if they come back in the second leg, which is more likely than not because of Cristiano Ronaldo. Just the memes that'll come as a result of that, of, of Ronaldo coming back from a huge de- from a deficit again in the Champions League. It's just it's too funny. You can't write this shit.
0: Y- yeah, you can't. I I, uh, I think that's a great take. I, I I've actually my little Pep take. I think Pep's changed. I think something's changed in peps and. I think the kind of um self-implosion that we've seen from Pep in the last two seasons. Mm. Trust me, I am not saying it's not in there. I think Pep the Pep Roulette, the Pep Psycho, it could come out at any time. So far this season I've been really impressed with Guardiola. And I think that this could be the year. Um so that's my that's my take. But anyway, let's get to golf because Yeah, I've got so many hot takes in golf.
1: Yeah, so so the thing I actually I I I threw in the 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 thread uh, with both of you to to kind of ready your your appetite for this discussion was Bryson DeChambeau. So today is the first round of the Genesis at uh, at Riviera, and you know we've all we've all been to to Riviera at 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 one point. Um, Golf course. It is a beautiful golf course, very tough golf course, but the one thing it's not is a long golf course. Mm -hmm. It it plays, I think, between 7 and 7,100 yards, which for tour standards is short. Yeah. Bryson DeChambeau, at one point today, I don't know what he finished, but he was five over through 15, maybe no, six over through 15 holes. And there was all this chatter between group chats and Twitter and golf media that's saying... Oh, he's he's changing the profile of the game forever. It's the the game is gone. You got to have an eight thousand yard course next. No, he's really not. Has he won every single week since his kind of like, you know, renewed focus on just being this gigantic long drive professional golfer? No, he hasn't won every week. He won the U.S. Open, yes, and he played very impressively that week. But that was a golf win. That was not necessarily a just butcher a golf course with distance. You can't just do that every week on the PGA tour. And even if you try to do it, the focus on the physical element of the game is going to detract from one other element of it, whether it's the short game, whether it's on the greens, whether it's I, the mental game, it, the, the argument against what he's doing and how he shouldn't be able to do it, it, it has a lot of holes in it. And I'm just like, you, you don't, Need to be a long hitter to win on tour if you are a good player and you can score that doesn't matter you' you can win and that's you know you do it does give you an advantage i'll admit that and it does uh it does kind of skew the playing field in the direction of okay let's focus on hitting it further but by and large, if a player is not already someone who plays the kind of you know drive at three hundred and fifty yards little flip wedge into a green and, and knock it in for, for birdie and shoot 64. But, you know, by and large, it's, it's not players who don't have that profile already aren't going to be able to just change that up and still keep the other side of their game. Because the chances are, if you're a really good putter or you're really good around the greens, you work at it a lot. And if you're spending all your time trying to hit it 400 yards, you're not going to be spending time doing that. There's just not enough time in the day to do all of that at once. Mm-hmm. so i mean that's that's really the the one thing that you know willie and i have talked about this we talked about bifurcation we talked about the distance report and what rory said about the distance report and it, honestly i i don't have anything beyond what he said which is basically it's a waste of time and money
0: rory rory also said in that same interview that everyone no one talks about is annoying rory also said if they're four if they're for rolling back the golf ball at professional level, I'm all all for that because it would just mean the better players rise to the top. No one heard that because he shat on the distance report for the whole time. But in that same interview, he said that he said at the professional level, there's a whole, uh, I, this is not from me. This is from a, a different podcast I listen to. They have a great take that the whole language around this is like, we're coming for your your guns language. Like everyone's afraid that they're going to like not be able to hit their new Callaway or Taylor may driver. I'm, you know that I'm for rolling. I think that, and like, obviously Rory said the same thing. Like if you just make small adjustments at the professional level, I think it would make golf more enjoyable. Let's get into the Brighton thing. Now, first of all, for today, I I played golf today in in LA. It was blowing 30 miles an hour. Like it was absolutely, it was so hard to play golf. So, uh, you know, Justin Thomas shot seven over today. Rory shot like three over today. Like it was a, and they all teed off in the afternoon. Like it was a, especially in the afternoon, it was a, not an easy time to play golf. in. I would also say that let's kind of like, Let's get, you've got to give Bryson another year before like, I can put my hands up and be like, I was wrong about what Bryson's doing to the game. And also Bryson himself has said, I'm pulling back from the whole getting as big as possible thing. Like, I don't know how much is actually helping me. I'm still going to try to hit it as far as I can, but I'm not going to try to weigh 400 pounds and hit it 400 yards because it's not helping the game. I've lost touch. I don't feel good. You know, at the Masters, he says, I don't feel good. Like, my my body doesn't feel good. And that makes sense. I'm surprised he hasn't ripped his back apart. Um, Look, I think my take comes down to just like Chelsea, like, what do I see? Like, does it pass the eye test? Golf isn't that enjoyable to watch when I'm watching a bunch of guys just smack driver and then hit a, a wedge 100 yards. Like that's not enjoyable. And, and from a fact, like I don't find that super enjoyable to watch anymore. Like, and honestly, like golf is at a crossroads right now, because in some ways it's like the strongest golf has ever been. And at the some and some ways, like it's struggling in this kind of like post target era. And then there's also like golf battles. This thing is like, how many golf events a year really matter? Six. You know, maybe eight, you know, and then all the other times you're just going to like, am I going to watch, am I going to turn the TV on and watch Bryson shoot 24 under par at the rocket mortgage classic? Probably not. Like I probably don't care about that. You know, I don't, I don't, I just think that golf. And I think what was so exciting about watching Tyler play was like, they had to hit shots, and I I think golf needs to get back to being more of like the combination of like athleticism and artistry. Yeah, I think that golf is, and right now it doesn't feel like that. And trust me, like I love it. I I mean, as someone who like I hit the ball a long way as a kid, and I I absolutely loved it. And I Rory's my favorite player, but Rory's also like a little bit of an artist, so I, I put him in a different category. And Bryson is just an example of a further trend in the game. I just think that why, you know, DJ shot 30 under par earlier this year, uh, last year. Do you how boring of a golf tournament that was to watch? Like what's fun about watching someone just make a golf course. Just, I'm going to smash it as far as I can. The ball's not going to spin or do anything because of the technology design. So to kind of explain to Willie a little bit and to anyone who's kind of talking about that. So before the technology got to the point before the golf ball would spin a lot, the more yeah. spin you got on the golf ball, the more the golf ball's going to move and the less far it's going to go. The golf balls now, they barely spin. Uh, they don't, have, they don't. So when it doesn't spin, it means it's not going to go offline. So you're not going to, And if it's not going to go as light, it's just going to be a straight bullet that goes forever in the air and then gets on the ground and runs forever. And then they've also, it's incredible what they do. They've also soft design. So when you're around the green, you can get it to stop dead on the green. It's pretty incredible. The, The technology advancements in golf are, are incredible, but it's also going to, it's going to ruin the game because I really am. I'm really, I'm really strongly in this boat because like only one golf course in the world can afford to keep doing what it's doing and buying more land and adding more tees and making it longer. And that's Augusta national. That's the one golf course in the world that can keep doing that. All these other golf courses are irrelevant. Here's a hot take. St. Andrews, arguably the home of the home of golf, arguably the best golf course in the world. Absolutely irrelevant. It's going to be destroyed. When they go play, when they go play it in a couple of years' time, unless it blows forty miles an hour, and that so we just get to a golf tournament like the uh, a classic range course, and we all just pray. We're all like, please blow wind, please blow wind, because what it's just going to be like, you know, turn on the golf on in, in next week or something, at a, and and you just see all you see is like this guy smacking a drive and then just flipping a wedge. I want to see guys like. Carve a seven iron into a par four, like Tiger used to do, or like it's a or like play a par five like it used to be played. Like, man, this guy like you can lay up and and try to make birdie, or you can go for it. But if you go for it, like you can bring double into play. No, every par five is plays closer to a stroke average average of three than it does to five. Uh, so like three, so for me. And I'm not saying golf isn't hard. Golf is in, tr- golf is incredibly hard. Outside of those massive events, I just think that, like, I'm just kind of seeing a lot of the same shit. And that's why Jordan Spieth last week is a further, I, I think this proves my point, if anything. Like, that was, I was like, oh, my God, like, this is so cool. Like, Jordan Spieth hits it everywhere. Like, the guy hits it all over the golf course. And he doesn't hit it long, but he scrambles like a madman. And he makes all his putts. And he hits crazy shots, and like I saw, like I saw on Twitter, like Jordan is the, like one of the only players out outside of, since Tiger who like gets people going in that way because he's just like he's just a maverick, and I think that golf is losing mavericks and and just kind of because uh, because of the way the game's going. So that's kind of like obviously I want on a bit of a I was a bit of a passionate rant, but I, I feel pretty I, I I'm definitely I didn't even know a lot about like bifurcation out. There until like last year but now that i've kind of understood it and i kind of thought about it a lot i really am in the in that category and i'm not i'm not advocating at all for changes at amateur level just at the top level I, i think it would be a more enjoyable product
1: there's a lot of merit in in what you're saying in taking away the artistry of golf and turning it more into a a power sport a sport that's based on the ability to generate power from a stationary position and that takes away from the inherent artistry that goes into whether it's, you know, back in the day, Sevi Ballesteros getting up and down from a trash yes. can Great. or Great. Tiger hooking a slicing a ball, uh, you know, 60 yards or hooking it around the ninth at Augusta. But the one thing that I get stuck on, and this is kind of the PGA Tour, mostly the PGA Tour, but also the I'm sure the RNA and the USGA have a little bit of this, especially as the way they set up their courses for, for majors. It's it's course design and it's the way that the PGA tour specifically, but tours Mm -hmm. around the world, it's the way they set the courses up. They said they don't, they're not reacting to players reacting to the courses. They're not tiger proofing courses as much these days. And that's because they're trying to grow the game for the average fan. The average fan, when they watch it, they go to a tournament they got a couple of drinks in their system and they see someone whip out a driver and hit a 400 yards. They're like, yeah, that's, that's what I want to see. They don't want to see, they don't necessarily want to see guys, you know, hook it around a tree. I mean, yes, some, some golf fans do it. I think we're, we're a part of that group, but realistically they're trying to grow the game in a, a populous way. And the long ball is the big thing. It's the populous kind of attractive feature of golf. It's not necessarily the artistry. That's more. You know folks who who have played the game for a long time or or really, really into the game, and that's the thing that for me it, it stops me from being on board because I, I think all of what you're saying is is very accurate, and it it would be a shame if a place like St Andrews or you know any of the the classic Lynx courses uh, that are in the open rotation become reduced to you know courses that we have out here, because really the elements are the only defense of those courses. And that's the one thing that'll separate, you know, a tournament like like an average PGA Tour tournament when the winning score is close to 25 under par versus a major where, you know, maybe double digit under par is a good score. The other thing I'll say is that there are courses like Riviera on tour and the only reason they're not playing tougher is because they're not being set up as tough. You think about Marion in 2013 in the U.S. Open. That, to me, is the prime example of, yeah. yes, it was eight years ago or seven and a half years ago at this point, but the game I'm right now... it a long way. It, it, the technology has come such a long way since then, but the game is still fine. If you miss the fairway at Marion that week, good luck making par. Yeah. Because there, there's no way you could get it out with any reason and stop it on the right side of the green to be able to make two putts there's just no chance and it's down to course setup and it's it's whether or not the pga tour and the european tour and golf's governing bodies care about the winning score of a tournament or if they care about the popularity of the game and ultimately as a result of that the profit that they and uh networks receive
2: i'll say i'll just say a couple things like real quick because i think so first of all i thought chris a lot of what you're saying was really interesting because I had thought, and that is a great point, right? Because I, I thought, kind of, you know, like Owen was saying, from a you're right, from a, a populist point of view, you know, the PGA Tour slogan, right, is is live under par. <laughs>
3: they,
2: they, think, right? they,
3: that, like...
2: they must think that uh, they, you know, people like seeing birdies. But right? so it's interesting. You mentioned that you don't like watching that style of golf. So that's that's really. I, I... I love birdies.
0: I just, I hate the flip wedge like,
2: right. And so, no, that's a, that's a, a completely, you know, fair point. And that's one thing we have to consider. But I think the one thing for people that are in favor of bifurcation, I think that, you know, the one thing I will say is like, yeah, while I do agree, like there are courses, the Rivieras, the TPCs, like Torrey Pines, like that, that are tough on course. I will just say that the way that, they tore up Wingfoot. I think was when people were really saying that the game was lost because you watched, I mean, and you'd seen this with Kepka when Kepka did it, you know, and I remember at, at Beth page, right. He just hacked the ball out of the rough. But you saw, you know, you saw uh, Bryson DeChambeau, like you saw at that at that US open, like there was nothing that could stop them. Right. It was like they hit so far. And even if they were in the rough, they could just hack it out. And so I will just say that, I'm more in favor of against the bifurcation, but I do think that hopefully that if they actually did change the course setups, they would actually be able to hold because I do agree. There comes a point where if you can just hack the ball out of the rough, if if you lengthen the rough and you can just hack the ball out of the rough and you're so close to the hole and it doesn't matter or like, or like you said, if, if you just, you make the fairway and you have to, you hit a wedge. Like there is a point where maybe even the tough courses can't, can't hold up. And so that I think an interesting uh, point.
1: Yeah. And and there's a lot of merit in that. I don't want to, I don't want to take away from, from the argument for bifurcation. You know, Chris, you brought up a lot of really good points and I don't disagree with them necessarily, but I think for, for right now, the game is still in a good place. I think recent, Winners on tour, by and large, are not all going to be guys who are going to try to hit at 400 yards. The game is trending towards a more distance oriented uh, into a more distance oriented sport. But that doesn't mean that course designers can react because they thought originally, oh, just lengthen the course, make it harder. That's not necessarily how you lengthen a golf course. Golf course does not play hard because it plays 7800 yards. Riviera is one of the toughest courses guys will play on tour. And it's not because it's a long course. It's because if you make a mistake, bogey is sometimes a good score. And that is something that to me, we can see more of because these guys are not going out and playing your local municipal course. They're not going out to playing the, the random public course down the street. These guys are playing top notch courses. Quail hollow is an example of one. They have made exponentially easier over the years, in the last yeah, five in the- years in particular. And that's a golf course that, it is a hard golf course. And for guys to be posting close to 20 under as a winning score, not only does it show how good they are, but how much easier they've made the course. So it's really up to golf's governing bodies, whether they not, whether or not they care about winning score or you know, making the game, you know, make really testing players week in and week out. And the way they played Beth page and and Wingfoot, they're you know, they're cautionary tales more than anything. But I think even so since 2013, I think the U S the USGA has kind of been like, okay, we can't have like, you know, we got to make these courses a little easier. Like some guys were complaining about Marion being too tough or in 2015 chambers Bay was unfair because of the the conditions. And it's, it's just golf's governing bodies have to be on the same page as to what they want, because there doesn't seem to be any sort of, of unison.
0: Can I can, um, I, can hmm. I jump in real fast? Yeah. Um. First of all, on the on top of the governing bodies, I'm actually very excited for Mike Wan as the new USGA, yes. USGA director. I want to see how that plays out. I'm actually excited for that. I want to go. I love this pop up point about golf populism. Um. You know, we're all the world is going on the populist route right now. So it's it, it's funny that we're talking about golf populism. But for me, and I want to I want to pose this question to you guys: the most memorable shots in my lifetime. Aren't wedges? They're not drives. They're Tiger chipping in from a terrible spot behind the green in sixteen. They're hitting something from a tr- hitting Tiger hitting through through some trees and making birdies at Bell Reef. You know the, the the most memorable shots in golf, the ones that you watch on the YouTube compilations. None of them are wedges. That they are like the the they are the and the, the, the shots that kind of live in people's memories are the shots where you kind of it's risk reward Bubba hooking something in the trees. You know, those, those are the shots that kind of live in people's memories. And I think we get, and I know that there's like a, like he bombed it. And I, and I, I'm not saying don't let them hit the ball. Like the rollback of the ball would be like 5%. The ball would still go like 330 yards. But I think that what I think that people would, I think people kind of forget that the most memorable shots in the history of golf aren't drives. You know, I've never, you know, maybe if someone hold a drive from, you know, <laughs> hit, hit a hole in one or part four—that's a memorable shot. But and then secondly, I wanted to, I wanted to, uh, God, now I forgot what was I was going to, now I forgot what I was going to say. But I wanted to talk. I was like, oh, God, we joined. Oh yeah, we were talking about so course setup. I totally agree. The PGA Tour is quite weak in the way they set courses up for the most part. I think it's kind of I, – I, I, they gone. i l I've noticed that they're actually getting a little tougher because I think there's been so much criticism of it. And I appreciate that. But let's take Wingfoot for example or even Beth Page Black. So on these majors, you know, they're like, okay, we're gonna try to co- combat the distance thing. We're gonna make the fairways really small. We're gonna make it firm and fast. Now if you if you talk to like a Matthew Fitzpatrick who played at the Wingfoot. Wingfoot, I'm not saying Matthew Bates Patrick should win the U.S. Open. He's he's probably not a good enough player to do that. He's a great player, but he's not a good enough player to do that. Matthew Bates Patrick hits like 75%, 80% of his fairways. Wingfoot had cut the fairways to probably 10, 15 yards wide, and they're rock hard, right? So you could be as accurate as you want. You're still going to end up in the rough all the time. Mm -hmm. Now, what that means is the guy who hits it 285, 290, is going into his 450 yard path war with a five or six iron out of three four inch thick rough. And Bryson, who's just says, fuck it, I'm gonna hit this ball 380 in the air and have a flipped wedge in. It doesn't like the guy who's more accurate doesn't have an advantage. He has a disadvantage because he's coming out of the rough with a five iron. So and that's, and, and Bryson ends up winning by six and everyone around him on the leaderboard are bombers. And if you look at the majors and that's kind of where, just like, just like um football is trending towards champions league being like the be all end all and like where pe- history is made and the legends are born. Like that's what the majors are in golf. And if you look at the majors, for the majority, like go back and look at the list. All of them are like 320, 325 plus bombers now. And tiger was an exception in in the 2019 masters. And that was the best tournament of a lifetime. And tiger by and tiger, like I said, that was artistry tiger winning around the masters. And I just worry that we're going to go away from that. And I'm just, I'm, I, I didn't realize until I got on this podcast and talk about it. I didn't realize how passionate I was about this, but I just, (laughs) I just, the more I think about, the more I think about it, the more I speak about it, I'm like, God, this, I think that I, I really feel not to ever have to of their own opinion. I just, I, 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 I think that I, I think it needs to happen. I think that they kind of need to rip the bandaid off a little bit and do it before it's too late because there is no more tiger proofing. Tiger proofing of course was making the courses longer that it's not going to be like that anymore. There is just not enough money and not enough land. But and I think people would still people were still gonna enjoy golf because you're still gonna be able to go to the driving range and, and get on a track man or something and and still be like, "Oh, I just got one eighty ball speed I just piped it three twenty It's not gonna change the amateur golf it's just gonna you it's probably not even gonna be that noticeable of a difference but but it it will make a difference in the long run so that that's kind of that's how i that's kind of how I feel about it In the,
1: no in the and that's run. there's definitely you know there's there's a lot of really good reason for that and i I don't think a rational person could be like no everything you're saying is completely wrong yeah it's just it's it's a it's a real question of of how do you how do you look at the 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 boogeyman which is the distance problem uh and you know i I was looking at this again and winged foot last year in the u.s open played 7400 yards 7500 yards It's a pretty long golf course. It's not, you know, 77, 7,800, which we're going to see at some point. But if you look at a 7,000-yard golf course and you put an average PGA Tour uh, professional who hits an average length up against Bryson DeChambeau, and the penalties for hitting it five yards offline are at least two shots, that changes the complexion of the game and and that i think is is it's kind of almost untiger proofing of course and and rethinking the way you look at it you know again it's it's all a a philosophical debate at this point but there's there's just so many ways to 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 look at the same thing is how do we make golf enjoyable or as enjoyable as possible for anyone?
0: Yeah. And I I also want to say not to, I I don't mean to just come on here and crap on golf. I actually think (laughs) the game of golf is in a good spot. I think that it's the most, I think that it's, I think that it's one of the only things that has become like COVID has actually been very beneficial to golf in a weird Mm. way. And I think that the game is in a very solid point. I think you have, you know, at least 10 absolutely world-class players competing. And I think that in this post-Tiger era, everyone's asking for someone to go out and dominate DJ's kind of doing that right now. Let's see how it plays out. But I think it's almost stronger that there's like ten guys who are like like any one of us could win every week, and, and it creates a lot of good rivalries. Now, after praising it, I'm gonna crap on it again. Golf has got to go fully into the the, and I think what I'm so I think part of the reason I'm so um, passionate about like bifurcation, I just think golf has to. Now is the time to be bold and make some changes i'm not just talking about bifurcation i'm talking about the way it's presented the way it's advertised the way it's marketed like don't this whole like golf is a gentleman's thing stop doing that like golf needs Mm. rivalries they need to be bold like they need to just like we would look like there's a chance here to win younger viewers people like us and they need to go they need to Advertise themselves as a freaking sport with passion and rivalries and not just like, you know, like turn on the, the music and let people fall asleep on, on a Friday afternoon or Saturday <laughs> afternoon, you know, like they need to put Bryson and put Bryson and Brooks together in a group, like, like let them get at each other. You know, like they, they need that type of advertiser as a rivalry or do something. And then also when there's like 34 tournaments in a year, maybe do something a little different sometimes, like mix it up, do a men's and women's teams, team event, you know, you know, just change a format every once in a while, like do a do a more team events or like, I don't know if you guys heard about this PGL thing where they were going to kind of, that idea was to kind of do it like a formula one where players have teams and they manage their teams. I'm not saying that that's the right way to go, but those are the type of ideas that I'm just like, I'm very for in golf because I think that golf has become a little stale and I think that it it risks losing this very this momentum that I as someone who loves the game I want to see us um progress and like use that momentum to go forward but I think it I've always had a little bit of bitterness around like golf is a very like country club like white like just like rich game that kind of is stuck in its ways and that's always been something to me that I'm like, God, like it just like, this is such a great sport, but it's just made been made to seem so, so uncool. And so just kind of like elitist and uppity. And I don't think that's what the game truly is at its core. Cool. And I think that, you know, just being a little bit, um, malleable and changing and like, I, th- I just think it would be, I think now's the time to like be bold and, uh, mm. and that's why and so anyway, but that that's kind of where I'm at with with golf in general.
1: No, and and there's a lot of really good stuff in there. I I think I think you're making a bid for uh, for uh, commissioner of the PGA Tour at some point.
0: Commissioner for a day. I, that, that's from a different. <laughs> commissioner podcast. for a day. Yeah, I, 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 you might have to copyright that, but but uh, um, yeah, that I just I, I just think golf's in a good place, and I'm just mm. passionate about like okay, let's okay, we're in a good spot. Let's like, let let let's like capitalize on that and, and and continue to grow the game, as they say.
2: Well, we should um, touch on, I mean, so to your point, you bring up so many, really, you know, interesting points and I think just in what you're saying in terms of the last point, right, I, I think it's important we, in terms of you're talking about really, you know, allowing some some trash talk and format changes and mixing up the tour, and I think we'd be remissed if we didn't at least mention right the part of the criticism about this whole distance thing is just the regular joe schmo golfer like you know like us or you know me compared to you guys who i'll speak for me for example right i mean you guys are much better at golf than i am but i enjoy playing i can tell you i want every help with clubs i can
0: get i want oh yeah i'm not i'm not advocating against that i need it too
2: right and so. How, how, how do you feel about, like, you're talking about wanting to make golf fun to watch, but do you think that perhaps the negative consequences of changing that, how do you weigh, you know, maybe ma- preventing the professional golfers from uh, saving them from making the course obsolete, but maybe hurting the recreational golfer who wants to have fun with hitting whatever ball and swing whatever club he wants?
0: I'm absolutely against changing anything at the amateur level or doing anything mm. to affect record. I'm absolutely against that. No way. Am I pro that at all? I'm just, I'm just talking about professional level uh, and maybe I, I, I should have made that clearer probably, but that's that. I cause I totally agree with you. I think it, I think it risks making the game golf is way is hard enough. Like, especially unless you're a professional and these guys, the reason they're so good is because they're, they're literally practicing eight hours a day, you know, like that's what it takes and they're doing it their whole lives. But for most golfers golf is really hard in no way. Would I want to make it harder or or think it should be harder for, for a regular person. I'm just talking about at, at a professional level and just like regulating it a little bit. Like, you know, a lot of sports at professional level have regulations and, um, yeah. And I, I that that's kind of where where I'm where I'm coming from on that.
1: Yeah. yeah. Go, ahead. And, Go ahead. No, I should say there's there's, I, I, I don't think the argument is ever changing things for the amateurs. Yeah. Um, it's it's always been how do we make it so that professionals are, you know, they're challenged but they're rewarded for you know succeeding in those challenges.
2: I, Chris, yeah. One point that Chris said I think is really important though that I think is really important to mention is like, it is for the professional standpoint. He's right. Like it isn't as simple as you know. You just make the rough thicker and the narrow ways, uh narrower because there is a point like where we've seen with some of these tournaments where the the fairway is so small and when too many people miss the the fairway, it negates whatever advantage you have for the accurate drivers. And so that's one thing I want to see too. Is just like if we were to you know not roll back anything. Is there a way where we could actually – it's much easier said than done to actually reward accurate driving, you know? Like it, it's, yeah. it, And then at the same time, like I was saying before, not only prevent the balls from rolling off into the rough or just because they're so narrow to hit them, but to somehow, like, prevent the, you from being so close to the hole where you can just hack out of the
0: rough if you do that. Yeah. I've heard a lot of – I've actually heard a lot of um, – uh, interesting ideas uh, around this, uh, they kind of like go from like, you know, like a lot of courses on the PGA tour. Like if you, if you miss the green, you're in the rough, it's actually better for the play. It's actually a more of a challenge. If you, if you have shaved banks, or if, you know, if you miss the green, then you, it, it like uh, you go to places like Pinehurst, right where there isn't a lot of rough. And if you miss the green, then these massive roll off areas, and that actually challenges the players in a really Mm. different way. Mm. And that actually brings out the skill or like, you know, like going to a place where there is no rough in the fairway. So, you know, like, okay, so you're, it doesn't matter because if you have a really tough approach or really tight, you know, there was a theory that Bryson was going to struggle at Augusta because Augusta had decided that they were going to grow out the grain in the areas between like 20 to 80 yards of the holes, super tight and super grainy because they knew Bryson would be there. And like tr- even professional golfers, like trying to hit like a super grainy 60 yard shot. Like that's such a hard shot to hit.
1: It's so it's there, one of the hardest shots in golf. Yeah.
0: There, there are, there, there are ways of doing it without, without just growing the rough. I don't, I think that's a bit like that. That to me feels like the, the lazy solution. Like, grow the rough. Like, like I think there's like, and I think the shave banks thing is really cool. And I, I think that mm. also in, in terms of, I've been talking a lot about the viewing of golf, I, I always think that that's so cool. Like I, I, it's fun to see players have to play those shots rather than, you know, you, if you watch, like I, I'll encourage people listening and uh, like, next time you're watching PGA uh, golf, like just look and, uh, and, and see how many times people are just kind of like chipping out of rough around the greens. Rather than like they're down a hill and they have to kind of like, do I bump this up the hill, do I kind of fly it up there maybe I, I put it up the hill because i'm I'm not the best chipper,
1: which is what I would do yeah um, so yeah there's there's a lot there's a lot that golfs governing bodies can do beyond just growing out the rough and that don't actually affect the way that manufacturers are I mean they're very good manufacturers, and like Rory was saying they they can get around any sort of, of rules you put in place um so it's really down to at this point in in the kind of back and forth chess match between the players and uh the governing bodies it's on the governing bodies to to make a move that corresponds with it that makes it so that golf is still at the end of the day a game that punishes you for bad shots and rewards you for good shots as much as humanly possible obviously there's an element that you can't control which is just mother nature um, in the interest of time though, cause this is close to a three hour episode, which is the longest I, one we've had, but this I'm is sorry, probably the most, no, 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 This is the most dense and probably the most content filled one we've had. I was not expecting this, but this is fantastic content. Um, yeah, appreciate you having, appreciate having you on Chris. Feel free but, to
0: edit anything i say. Like you get off. yeah. <laughs> no, this, I have,
1: I have a feeling we'll, we'll probably cut out one part with the had technical, technical difficulty, but you know, besides that, I want to get over to, um, a couple things. Number one, I have a couple questions for you really quickly, and then we have our hot take segment, which I want to very quickly go through, uh, just so we can put a nice bow on this episode. Um, So, two questions for you. Uh, Number one, who is your your favorite, and who is your goat? Uh, And after that, that's kind of a two-part. After that, what's your favorite golf memory? It could be personal, it could be professional, someone on TV. Uh, So, favorite player right now, uh, greatest of all time, and then um, favorite golfing memory? Great question.
0: Can I make it harder on myself and say I'm not allowed to say Tiger for any of the, for the goat? Because, sure, sure. I mean, he is like the goat. Tiger but is the goat. Like he, he is the goat. But,
1: yeah. Time. Non the non Tiger goat. <laughs> it's hard because there really isn't no, 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 any.
0: I just, okay, uh, goat is KJ Choi. Okay. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Literally I love so it. <laughs>
0: uh, um, uh, um so he's my goat other than Tiger and shout out Ryan Cramer, He's my brother. Uh he'll he'll appreciate that that take. Um mm-hmm. I love Rory, man. It's it's uh I heard someone the other day talk about like, you know, like I'm kind of upset with golf because like my favorite players suck. And like, I kind of feel that way about Rory and like, I'm desperate for Rory to win. Like I, I kind of love, I really admire Rory. I think he's, um, I, I admire his game. Obviously. I also admire like who he is as a person. I, I I think he's really intelligent and well-spoken and super open. And, um, I, I, I'm a big Rory guy. So Mm -hmm. I I wanted to, I I could go like, I, I was thinking like, do I pick like a hipster choice? But (laughs) <laughs> no, like I, I KJ Joyce, Joyce, my hips are Joyce, but I, Rory's, Rory's my favorite player right now. And I'm really, I really hope he, he finds something and starts winning again, because uh, I think golf's a better game when he's like pushing, pushing DJ. I think him and DJ going like, I, it would be great if Rory could find something and it would be him and DJ at the top of the game. Like golf is in a good place if that's happening.
1: Yeah. So, and then uh before we go on to our hot takes segment, uh your favorite golfing memory, whether it's in person playing the game or watching you know the goats on t v watching watching Tiger do this, that, and the other. so it can be a tiger memory. it can be literally any anything else.
0: <laughs> I just think that for the sake of time i I could sit here and think like I've had a lot of personal golf memories that are are really important, and I think that just if anyone's listening to this and got through the three hours and like, Oh, well they're talking a lot about golf. Like I don't like golf. Like (laughs) golf uh, has brought my, my, my family close together. Like, you know, like it's, it's a central point of like, you know, I played a lot of golf with my dad and my brother and it's, um, it's a very, it can really bring people together and like going on trips and like doing things like, like that. And having those experiences can be really good. So I, that on a personal level, that's it for me. But the 2019 Masters was um, mm. was a dream come true. As yep. someone who kind of was young when Tiger was really good, and like I remember watching a lot of Tiger when he was really good when I was younger, but like I didn't see a lot of Tiger winning a lot of majors other than like 2008 and some of the 2005, 2004 stuff, but I was still pretty young. So mm. to kind of like see Tiger win in 2019 was, I'm very unlucky I was alive for that. So
1: that was just a great day in general, and, and yeah, you're not going to, you, 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 for I think you may have suppressed the other part of that day, which may not have been as enjoyable for you.
0: Which uh, was that?
1: It was, it was um, the Liverpool game against Chelsea.
0: Oh God! Which Salah scored I, I the? We have to end The world: <laughs>
1: <laughs> Oh, don't worry. There's more Liverpool talk uh, to round okay, out the uh, to round out the show. Round. Don't worry. I
0: want to hit this round that you've been.
1: Don't worry. Practicing. Okay. But no, I I love that memory though, and and that's up there for me. It, as well, so it's yeah. it it makes a grown man cry. That's all I'm going to say about that. I that was moment. I
0: was sobbing. It's a grown man cry. <laughs> Here's my hot take: a lot of people talking about um Mbappe this last week. The mm. guy's going to be a future Ballon d'Or winner. Come do it in the Premier League. I know that's a very yes. cliche English thing to say, man. But come do it in the Prem. Like, come do it in the Premier League, please. Please, I, we have the best league in the world. I don't know how. I don't know how else to say it. I, I, I almost don't want to go into it because like so many people say it, but like it's the most competitive league, and these best players. You know, I have so much respect for Ronaldo because he came and he did it. And I know he wasn't the best player in the world before he came to the league, but like, just come do it in the prem, please, Mbappe. Um, like, just show us. And but and just quickly, but like also. I also understand why they don't because we don't protect the players in the premier league. And like, if you look at Eden Hazard, like he left the premier league and he's only like 29 years old. It's like, he's 35. You know why? Because he got kicked like 200 times a season for seven years. And now his body is broken. And there's so I also, I'm not just going to be like the blind English football fan. Who's like, Oh, you didn't do it in the prem. You're not that good. I get why they don't do it because the the Premier League doesn't protect its players. And, Mm. you know, uh, and and there's more. And right now, like, league football isn't the most important thing. The most important thing is Champions League and the World Cup in terms of, like, global reach and and stardom. So that's my not very hot take, but...
1: No, I I, I like it. Yeah, I like... I want to see it as well. I think Mbappe and Holland within the next five years would be incredible both of them fantastic if only one that's fine
0: kj choice the, as the greatest golfer of all time is my hot take i mean that's it, doesn't a- it, any, it doesn't get any hotter than, than i like than it that.
2: wow as your all-time wow okay
1: i mean he's yeah. the goat power lifter he just happens to be really good at golf too yeah he's the goat that's a great little boy so
0: <laughs> uh, the, i mean kj Choi is just like he's he's just unbelievable he's I mean, kj choice he's kj Choi. i mean he's it KJ really Choi. is like i it, it, it would it would behoove kj to to explain further you know like kj explains for himself with his game okay. oh my god he should have won like four masters it's it's all right he he did it he did it on purpose he there was one things.
1: <laughs> he didn't he didn't want to have more majors he than, it, than tiger
0: yeah he bottled it yeah he's just being nice it, deliberately deliberately because he just <laughs> he he knows he, it's more of a, it's more of a, it's more of an example of like he knows there's more important things in life and like yes, yeah. that's why
1: we love KJ. But <laughs> very much so.
2: That's uh, I mean yeah, hey,
0: he won a lot of regular tour events, right? I mean he's very I think he only won like five. A, a lot of this is thing, but
1: <laughs> Yeah. Something like that. He won the players, which is like the fifth major, so
0: I, I, I must be wrong. I thought he actually won. It. I think he maybe he did, but I, I can only remember like two or three. But I think he won like probably won. Like, I bet I bet if you someone looks it up, I bet he won ten. I bet that's how many PGA total wins he has.
3: Wow. Okay. All right. Um, cool. All right. So- he has.
1: He has. Oh, sorry. Really quickly, oh, okay. he has eight total wins, including the players. Oh, that's, okay. okay. In, on the PGA tour, sure, that is.
0: Guys. The players. Oh, that was such a good win. I remember that. Mm. Um, Willie, what's your hot take? I want to hear it. Yeah,
1: I got a
2: couple. I got. Uh, I mean, all right. So here's the first one. I think this is a pretty hot take. So um, you know, one big player, uh, and, and you know, in terms of, fitting the theme for this episode, right? A lot. Of, one big player, linked to English football, was Jaden Sancho a lot earlier this year, and I think his best days may be behind him. He's his only, oh. but um, you know, he's had a tough season. He's had a really tough season, and that's in part. My prediction is in part because. Last season, he was so good. Like, 17 goals, 16 assists, but I'm not sure that there's this player that we think is going to become a quote-unquote world-class player. Like, I think he might have reached his ceiling, and to be perfectly honest, he was so good. I don't know if he's going to be able to get back there. That, that's, that's
3: one of my takes.
1: That's a good take. Yeah. A good I, take. I, I like it. Because it, he's young enough where the door is open, but he's not too old where it's like the window is closing fast.
2: No,
1: so I feel like go either way.
2: it's tough. I mean, I feel like it's just a lot of its circumstances, the system you're in confidence, right? Like, but it's like, I wonder what does that do to a player's confidence where, you know, don't get me wrong. He's had injuries at times, but what does it do when you, you kind of drop off like that? Right. I mean, that's a, that's a pretty steep drop off. He's had from season to season.
3: Um, yeah.
1: Can't, it can't be good. The, the drop off in confidence because confidence is one of the main things that that really makes a player i mean if you want a really really good example look at kevin de bruyne um yeah. i know chris you may hate that example but look at what it no, did I, when I he, love
0: he's one of my favorite players
1: he went to wolfsburg got a ton of playing time and just room to develop as a player and he comes back to england as one of the world's best mm-hmm. case in point sometimes it's just confidence when you're at the elite level that can be the deciding factor between being a legend or being just another, another player. I've been sitting on this take since Saturday at roughly 10.30 a.m. since the, um, not the end of the Leicester game, but since the end of Klopp's press conference after the Leicester game, when he was asked very specifically by one reporter, and he gets this question every single game without fail. What does this mean for you in the title? What does this mean for you in the title? This, this was week one, two years ago. He was asked about the title two years ago, 2018. He said, you spent all this money on Navi Keita, Allison. Are you going to win the title this year? And he's just like, why are you asking me this question? Jurgen Klopp gets this question because he's a Liverpool manager, because they hadn't won the league in, at that point, 29 years. It's a fair question to ask. But when your response, the response you get, From a well-spoken, intelligent, successful, might I add, German manager. When the response you get to that is, I'm not going to answer this question. You know me. I don't talk about results. I talk about the next game as being the most important game. He got asked this question again. The question was, are you conceding the title now? This man, less than three weeks after the Leicester game, lost his fucking mother And he wasn't allowed to go to Germany for the memorial service because of COVID, which is understandable. My mom didn't get to go to both of her parents' memorials this year, and you know she repressed it really well, but it's a fucking killer thing to have happen. And he was asked this question for the billionth time, and he actually started to cry a little bit and get emotional about it. And I'm like, yeah, I I would too, because believe it or not, The most disrespectful profession right now in the world, bar none, is an English football quote-unquote journalist. Nothing comes even close to being that level of disrespectful. I don't care if it's one reporter. I don't care if it's one publication. I don't care who they work for, what their goal is. The business of English football media, and yes, I'm generalizing because you have widely respected reporters. uh, It's
0: a fair generalization. It's a fair generalization. You have
1: widely respected journalists like James Pierce, um, David Ornstein, Raphael Honigstein. You have a ton of credible, hardworking, honest reporters. But at the end of the day, in England specifically, the practice is not, let's tell people about how their favorite clubs are doing. Let's go in depth and get inside the mind of what these managers are thinking. It's, are you going to win the trophy? Are you going to make money? Are you going to sign this player? Are you going to do that? There is a lack of humanity that is, pardon my French again, fucking disgusting. And I've been sitting on this take since I heard that interview, since I watched a grown man who just lost his mother. And this became public days before that. I don't know if the club told reporters before press conferences, hey, this is a sore subject for him. Do not bring it up. I understand you want to wish him well. Do that privately. Don't do it in a press conference. Not a single reporter in any of those press conferences after the news broke that he had lost his mother in mid January, not a single one said, Jurgen, I don't want to talk, I don't want to ask about football. I just want to say commiserations. I really feel bad for you. It's a hard thing to go through. Uh, and you know we we support you, and it, it will get better. Not a single one of them had that, had any sort of idea of what it is like to lose a family member during a goddamn pandemic. It is fucking disgraceful to journalists, and every single person who claims to be a journalist in England who covers football needs to take a very, very hard look in the mirror because if you are continually asking about Trophies and titles and players and transfers and not contextualizing a single thing. You are a waste of oxygen, period. I'm sorry. I don't care. That's it. But take a very hard look at what you do as a career because you shouldn't be doing this. It's it's disgusting. And I've I've had this in the tank for an entire week. So that's why it just came out the way it did.
0: I think a lot of people in the UK would, would, would agree with you. I think um, tabloid journalism is a massive problem. And uh, I think you said that very eloquently with a lot of passion. So yeah, I agree with I, you. I agree you know, with you. It-
1: so I could be wrong. I don't know if the club had already informed journalists like, hey, he just lost his mother. Please don't talk about it. Please focus on football. But as a human being, having any sense of decency, for anyone you routinely either work with or interview is like, is the bare minimum. And to not have that to me was just, it was fucking heartbreaking. And I, I know I'm swearing a lot, but it, yeah. this is really how strongly I feel about it. And if this is continuing, if this is going to be a thing, honestly, if after next season, Klopp wants to leave with two years left on his contract. I don't blame him. I do not blame him in the slightest.
3: <sighs> yeah.
1: So that's all I got. That is the uh, the most fire, not necessarily hottest take, but most fire, rage-inducing take that I have.
2: Chris, what do, what do um, in terms of whether it's newspapers or magazines, like what is the what do you think is the best like English media uh, outlet for uh,
3: journalism? for soccer um i actually think the bbc does a pretty good job i think sky sports
0: does a pretty good job for the most part um i, I really like the bbc podcast they do the football daily podcast i think they have some really smart journalists mm-hmm. uh, kind of journalists i really like i'm really a big fan of that R- roy smith who runs the new york times football section actually very good um but I, I think that uh, English media is, is absolute sensationalism. So I, I, I like I totally hear where um, Owen's coming from, and like I was actually going br- to. That's so funny. I was actually going to bring up what happened with Jurgen. So I'm I'm glad you did because I was uh, very sad to see that, and I actually I can't imagine what he's going through. My final hot take is that I think Phil Foden will bit- win the Ballon d'Or. <gasps> mm. That's At nice. some point very well good. His- it is some point in his career. I think he'll win the Ballon d'Or. I think, and I got two more hot takes. Um, actually, my final hot take for my Ameri- the American listeners. I think America will win the World Cup before 2050. Before oh, 2050.
1: Oh, God. Oh, we 55. Before
0: 2050. I think there's a lot of science, and I, I'm, 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 I'm basing this off statistics and facts. I, I think that America, uh, if please correct me if I'm wrong and I'll come back on the show and apologize. But I believe that the most played sport at a junior level is now soccer in the U.S. I think that developed countries tend to do well in the world cup because they have a lot of money to put into the youth level of the sport. And I think that if America clearly has the athletes for soccer, it's just about getting the athletes to play football. And I think that you're actually seeing a lot of really good young American footballers coming through. Now, that that, that could not be true. You have to have a lot of close calls with the World Cup to win it, like look at Spain. But I think that I could definitely see America winning the World Cup before Mm. 2050. So that's my really hot take. I hope you're right.
2: Question, who wins the World Cup first, the U.S. or England?
0: England, 100%. <laughs> 100%. That, is. I, 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 don't know. I don't know if I want to be alive for the, the, the world, but Americans... Oh, I'd love like
2: sometime talk about the English national team because, I mean, it's so interesting how, truthfully, it feels like in our lifetime. I mean, they just have had a lot of talent but have really underperformed. Hey Euro,
0: I'd love to come back on and we can yeah. do like an England episode. Euro I've 2020
1: watched. this summer, so
0: yeah, we'll see. Let's do it, guys. Thank you guys uh, so much for having yeah. me on, Chris. Thanks for and, thanks uh, for
1: coming on. um Really quick before you go, is there anything you want to uh want to plug while you're here? Any any projects you're working on? Anything in particular?
0: Yeah,
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> I had a movie come out called Recon. It's on um, it's on Amazon. You can rent it on Amazon and iTunes. Um, nothing, nothing I want to. Other than that, uh. I nothing I, that was from a few months ago, but it's like a World War Two movie and I'm I'm in it for like the first fifteen minutes and then I may or may not die. Many people many people don't know Many People think the character is still alive. Um <laughs> you have to watch to find out. Uh other than that, um, no, not right now. But any I just want to say everyone stay safe and uh COVID is is real. If anyone's listening and doesn't believe COVID isn't real. So
1: Absolutely <laughs> that's,
0: Absolutely. That's my only thing that I have.
1: Yeah. All right, Chris. Well, thank you so much for coming uh, on. appreciate your like time, guys. the two and a half hours spending with us. Uh, appreciate it. And we'll, uh, we'll see you very soon.
0: Great to see you guys. See you soon. Thank you guys. Bye. All right. Take care.
1: So there's our interview with, uh, with our, our good friend, Chris Crema. You know, I, I think we've had more on this episode with one guest than we've had in any other episode yeah, with awesome. either yeah. the two of us or us with, uh, our former guests, or or our usual contributors from the Arsenal side, um, you I believe you had one more take before we uh, before we wrap it up for the night.
3: I do, yeah, uh, I do, I do have my take. Okay, so here, here, here's my take. Yeah. So by
2: by the end of by the end of their careers, with the exception of Dustin Johnson, and um, and Brooks Kepka and of course Tiger. I think that Patrick Reed will have the third most majors. That includes more than Rory, you know, JT, you know, Shoffley, Spieth, anyone you can think of. If Justin Rose or get hot again. I think Patrick Reed's going to rattle off four before the end of his career.
3: Wow. And I
2: hate to say that. I hate to cringe. Because I love Justin Thomas, and I love Roy McIlroy, and I strongly dislike Patrick Reed, but I believe in his game a lot. And I like what I've seen this season.
1: Well, you know, sometimes you just got to get you someone who loves Patrick Meade, who uh, loves Pat, I'll Also, including John Rahm. Oh, kidding. wow. Yep. Well, I mean, sometimes you just have to get yourself someone who loves Patrick, who loves yourself... Uh, as much as Patrick Reed loves Patrick Reed, I
2: think I, I just I, I think that um, and one thing we can't miss is I, I just think that and you, Patrick Reed loves the moment, man. And I just think that you can't underestimate in golf. It's just even John Rahm. John Rahm's a little frustrating. It's like show like show me in the majors. You know, you you'll win a regular tournament or two every season. And you'll be in just about every tournament. But it's like, when it really counts, like Patrick Reed, whenever he's in contention, usually does really well. Rarely does he flame out. And so I just like Patrick Reed's game. Um, And I believe he has the mental fortitude in the majors at the big moments, unlike some of these other guys to, or it's just, I don't know what it is, but it's like, I mean, uh, we've talked about Rory, but I just feel like Rom and JT—they're other two great examples. Um, you know, JT early in his career, it felt like he was in contention for every major. Recently, not—you know, same with uh, you know, Rom really hasn't. I mean, he—he he had that collapse at the Players Championship a couple years ago, but mm. for the most part, I think he's been extremely disappointing in the majors. And so, I just—I just like Patrick Green's game. And
1: uh, I think it'll rattle off for. Well, as as a rational golf fan, I hope you're wrong. That's all I got to say.
3: I do too. I do too.
1: Yeah. Well, this is by far the longest episode we've had. And I really do appreciate, uh, Willie, having you on as always. Um, yeah. And, and having, having Chris on gave us that extra perspective this week. I think there's a lot of really good stuff we have. Um, and it should give you a look into what our future episodes are going to look like maybe not this length, but certainly a a lot of the good content um, that we, we got through today. A lot of the good discussions we had, I think we're going to see a lot more of that uh, as we go forward with the podcast, but that'll do it for this week. This has been hot takes only episode 33. If you can believe it, I feel like we just hit 30 uh, and here we are already already at 33. But again, uh, a big thank you to Chris for, for coming out. Uh, Be sure to check out recon on Amazon and iTunes. You can rent it. Um, and I'll be sure to drop his uh, his social media as well. Really funny guy, really good guy as well. Um, be sure to uh, keep an eye out on him for for the next few years. So, any uh, any last parting thoughts before you get out of here, Willie?
3: Yeah. Last thoughts. Yeah. Uh, I just want to say that I I I don't know if Spieth is teasing
2: me or not. I don't know if he's he's in control. <laughs> And he's gonna eventually break through, or if this, this is just, you know, tease, and he's gonna, you know, he's never gonna be the same player. He was
1: well, when when players are doubted by uh, columnists and and talking heads in the media, they're usually proven wrong. So let's, yeah, I mean, we'll wait and see. But by and large, if you count someone out who's at that level, you're gonna be disappointed.
3: Yeah, that's, so. absolutely.
1: Anyways, this has been episode 33 of Hot Takes Only. Thank you all so much for listening. If you have made it this far, congratulations. You are a trooper. Uh, we're probably going to end up... Um, I'll probably end up cutting this, actually, into different segments. We'll have a football segment and a um, a golf segment as well to kind of split them. And, and a full episode as well. I don't know. We'll I'll, I'll figure it out. I might just do one episode, but I'm going to cut this part, obviously, out. Be sure to check out Hot Takes Only on Twitter. We are now on social media, well and truly for real this time. It's not just me plugging all of my stuff. Uh, It's at hto podcast, hto podcast on Twitter. Be sure to check it out. Um, Posting clips from our shows, maybe a little bit of the hot take you heard from me a little earlier, Uh, little bits and pieces here and there, things to watch out for. You know, retweets, banter, all that fun stuff. So at hto podcast on Twitter is the best place if you have any questions comments concerns what have you that is the place to get in touch at Hto podcast on Twitter so for Willie I'm Owen this has been episode 33 of hot takes only we will see you next time